The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Oh my god, it's never going to end. Well, I... Yeah, pretty much. All right, so, <laughs> one, one hopes that the Japanese manga industry is indeed never going to end, Don. Um, or at least, if it does end, it ends in a spectacular way. But I'd prefer it not to end because, well, manga. And that's our topic for today, folks. Today we're going to be talking about manga. Uh, or more precisely, we're going to be continuing on from our last long epic episode about manga, <laughs> which only got halfway through the story. So settle down, strap in, and uh, let's turn our Wayback Machine to the 1980s hmm. to continue our journey through the history of manga. <laughs> All right, so 1980 hits, and Japan is in a boom. This is the... Hmm. Great boom time for Japan, perhaps, actually considered one of Japan's greatest boom, peaceful eras. I mean, this is kind of the point where Japan is where China is right now, or was a couple years ago, where everyone is like filthy, stinking rich, uh, people are happy, uh, you know, banks are profitable, mm -hmm. everyone's, you know, Japan is basically buying the world at this point, at least that's what the American newspaper is telling us. Mm. Um, it'll be a few years before the movie Gung Ho comes out, uh, for... <laughs> an obscure 80s reference that someone can go look up or you can check our uh, show notes at obeythedna.com for that reference. Um, but Japan is basically ruling the world economically. In fact, it's kind of diversifying because they have just so much money at this point. Yeah. Meanwhile, their own manga industry is flourishing. How is it flourishing, Don? Quickly. Yes, yes, I imagine it is. <laughs> well, this, this is the time... Um... A lot of people think of when you look at uh, the Japanese comics, mm -hmm. the top sellers are in like what is it? Like there's some of them are selling like six or seven million copies a week. Mm -hmm. Shonen Jump would be selling. Hold on, just a sec here. And I will tell you about four okay. million. It's we're hitting okay in 1980. Shonen Jump, which is the top selling. Japanese manga. Um, we briefly touched on it before, but Shonen Jump should best be referred to as the marvel comics of japan i think i referred to it that way in the last episode that we recorded as well um yeah. so basically you can look at manga's health by looking at shonen jump in a lot of ways at least in terms of mainstream manga shonen jump is the manga yeah. um and anyway so in 1980 it hits three million copies a week this is weekly mm -hmm. shonen jump so that's three million copies a week going out yeah. By the end of the 1980s, it will be clocking in um, a little over 5 million copies a week. A week. Yeah. And that's not its peak, by the way, folks. It, it is its <laughs> peak in the 1990s, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. So in 1980, Shonen Jump is doing damn well. Um, mm -hmm. And they have a wide variety of content. Um, a lot of it at this point, if I recall right, is an interesting mix where some of it's... Um, 
influenced by the Gekiga that we talked about before, the dramatic pictures, at least in terms of style. Yeah. So you've got comics coming out like, for example, uh, Fist of the North Star was a super popular one that came out in the early 80s. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Fist of the North Star, and this was the pitch that the creator came up with. What if we took took the Road Warrior, but it starred Bruce Lee instead of um, you know, <laughs> Mad Max? And yeah. that was the pitch that they worked with. That literally was the pitch, apparently. I was yeah. reading about that. That makes sense. And that's exactly how and it plays out exactly <laughs> how we might expect, except with 10 times the gore and yeah. um, 20 times the testosterone. <laughs> um, Fist of the North Star is awesome. I love Fist of the North Star. But it is like, <laughs> it's like the Twilight for guys. It's um, It's just pure testosterone the only thing that perhaps has more testosterone than fist of the north star is another 80s title jojo's bizarre adventure <laughs> yeah that's in, true <laughs> in fact looking at uh, weekly shonen jump during the early 80s you see there's the interesting dichotomy which i just re- almost referred to there before where there's these gekiga like high testosterone high action manga which mm-hmm. run the gambit from Fist of the North Star to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. And of course, we've even uh, City Hunter is also coming out during the early 80s as well. Yeah. Um, although it's kind of in a weird bridge one because then you've got the slightly more cartoony stuff as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some ways, I would argue the 80s are an interesting period because they're kind of a period of everything. Like yeah. in terms of manga, you can find cartoony stuff, you can find serious stuff, you can find lighthearted stuff and dark stuff, and you can find a bit of everything going on. Like, it really is an era of, I would say, experimentation. I yeah. really would. I think that they're trying a little bit of everything and willing to experiment. Like, if you see Shonen Jump in the modern era, which we'll talk about a little later, but just to give a fast-forward view, I would say that the majority of the stuff in Shonen Jump all looks very similar. It has yeah. what you could be called a Shonen Jump style. Whereas in the 70s and definitely in the 80s, it was much more experimental. They were kind of just trying almost everything. If it, if, they, if it involved boys' action and boys loved it, they, you know, they printed it. And boy, did they print a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's, there, the two things that happened there, uh, why you had so much experimentation going on in the 80s, and, and we're just kind of getting to the beginning of that, was you had the bubble economy, so there was money. People had money to spend on on entertainment, and what you had coming from like um, the the earlier periods, comic books in Japan had a huge audience, mm-hmm. and that huge audience meant you had a bunch of different kinds of readers. Like um, mm-hmm. here in in North America in the eighties, when the eighties uh, boom took off, the one everybody knows of, the Marvel, the DC one. It was mostly males, like say thirteen to twenty-five. I think was the was the age that were right. your audience. So mm-hmm. every comic that came out started kind of veering that way, and you could tell if you compared that to the uh, the first boom of the eighties, which was like the independent boom, mm-hmm. where you had more variety, you had more, um, you had people drawn from the undergrounds, you had people drawn from like the the strips of the fifties. Um, you had people doing those a lot of like European style cerebral science fiction, and then that kind of after the black and white blood, everything became superheroes mm-hmm. because it was a certain demographic that took off as as the fans. Whereas in Japan, you had young, you had old, you had male, you had female. Um, one of the things that 
you have to keep in mind too, Shonen Jump mm-hmm. in the eighties was the top selling comic, but there were hundreds of other ones. And some of yeah. them, there were a lot like a second string book was still doing like 2 million copies a month. Mm-hmm. And it got so crazy. You had, th- there would be uh um, and again, to reiterate for anyone coming in, a Japanese weekly comic book is like a phone book. Yep. And it's got like one or two chapters from like 10 to 20 different stories. Yep. You had those coming out weekly. That would be pachinko comics. Mm-hmm. It was nothing but like pachinko comics. And there'd yep. be dramatic ones. There'd be comedic ones. There'd be serious ones. There'd be soap mm-hmm. opera but it's pachinko. Pachinko, for anyone who doesn't know, it's kind of like a cross between a pinball and a slot machine. Yeah, yeah. And they, it, it, and they would do comics on that, like, and and it was just because you had such a huge diverse audience. Pachinko was super popular, especially with say like older middle aged people. Mm-hmm. And there were enough of them reading that you could put out a whole weekly anthology that was nothing but stories about people playing pachinko and they would come up with weird variety and there were so many topics like that hmm yeah and there'd be golf ones cooking ones and any any topic there'd be ones about florists and people growing flowers and they Hmm. literally were doing everything now of course keep in mind for our audience who might be a little younger keep in mind the internet's not coming around for another like 15 years or so at this point (laughs) Um, so at this point, your entertainment options are TV, movies, um, good old fashioned reading, comic books, or video games. Those Mm -hmm. are your, basically your entertainment options at this point. Oh, and music, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things you're going to see is, is that in Japan, youth culture was basically oriented around manga, but kind of almost all culture was. It was a convenient, disposable entertainment form. Really, yeah. and everyone appreciated it. Everyone liked it. Well, to one degree or another, I'm sure there's people that hated it, but um, <laughs> they come later I, on. Yeah, they come. Well, that, that's <laughs> true. Well, not exactly. I mean, thanks to going to guy in the '70s, in the '80s, we do have the PTA movements. True. So we are going to see more and more censorship clamping down on manga and more of a homogenization of manga as well as they figure out what works, but. Again, we can talk about that as we go. Yeah, that comes later because, again, everybody is still making money. Mm -hmm. And there was also another weird thing that kind of uh, predominated Japanese culture up until fairly recently. Mm -hmm. It seemed to be this idea that they, they didn't freak out like we did over things because there seemed to be this attitude that if something's not real, it doesn't have the, the, the impact. Right. Like, we would have people, I remember, like, we talked about in the 80s, they complained about, say, um, like, Dungeons and Dragons would turn you into a satanic mass murderer. And that idea gained traction. It wasn't just, like, a couple of parents groups. Eventually, it was everybody, and serious news would talk about it. And there'd be, like, discussions about this in, in papers, and there would be, like, book burnings and civil authorities passing laws about it and such. Mm-hmm. And... Up until, again, fairly recently in Japan, it looks like that thing never quite took off because there was this, this thing like, it's it's just fake. Just, you know, chill the hell out. It's not real. Right, yeah. Sometimes to weird ways, because that was uh, the idea of, uh, like, Japanese censorship. Mm-hmm. That compared, compared to here, because, again, when you get into the 80s, you start getting into, like, some of the hentai stuff. Yes. 
And, and well, 80s is the birth of basically Japanese like porn manga. Basically, mm-hmm. comes about during the 80s. I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it actually comes about more or less during the 80s. It it does, and I would say that because you had adult stuff prior, mm-hmm. but again, it would be more. It wasn't just like, say, sex and nudity for the sake of sex and nudity or, or violence for mm-hmm. the – well, they do violence for the sake of violence. Thank you, well, Gona Guy. they do violence for the sake <laughs> of violence. Remember, the 80s included uh, comics like Rape Man, for example. Yeah, but that – but I'm talking like earlier. Oh, okay. And it kind of came about in the 70s because like we said, the 70s comics became a form of rebellion. Mm. That that was like the no good like, you know – kids would would get into that and it'd be like you know it'd be downtown like oh my god that guy has like young sunday he's a badass i don't want to mess with him which which seems said no one ever right there okay (laughs) sure well no there was there was kind of because again remember remember japan tends to be more homogenous than than here Mm, so it takes a little less to make yourself more of a rebel that's true but that was but that was where this attitude came from, and that was where you got a lot of the stuff later on. And then, like I was saying, Japan has weird censorship rules that seem to – a lot of it floated around this idea that fake is okay. Mm. And the hentai stuff is a great example because um, in Japan, at no time could you ever show a penis. Yes, that's true. Ever. Even if you were doing hardcore porn, you could not show a penis. So what they started doing is say, okay, I can't show a dick, but how about a giant tentacle rape monster? And it was like, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Well, you know, it goes back to Hokusai, right? Well, it, about that last time. He did the first tentacle porn. He did like like hundreds of years prior, which is weird. Yep. But it, but again, it's that idea that because it wasn't real, mm-hmm. you were cut a little bit more slack. I mean, yeah. we, we sort of had the same thing here for a while um, with uh, the imitatable acts. Yes. Yeah, it's true. And that was the idea in a cartoon. Uh, you couldn't show anything that a kid could do and get hurt, like, doing. Yes. But yeah, in Japan, it works really weird. And you kind of start seeing that, especially late 70s, going into the 80s. Yep. Uh, one thing before we go whole hog into the 80s, although I think we kind of already started. But uh-huh. something we forgot to mention last time when we were talking about the 70s that I realized is kind of important is in 1975... Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's 75, Comiquette opens. Yep. And Comiquette is kind of important. Um, basically what Comiquette is, for those of you who don't know, it's basically a place for people to trade fanzines. Because mm-hmm. naturally, while comics were a major art form, lots of people were drawing their own comics. Like people, there was lots of, not just small press, but what they called doujinshi, which is basically just like fan fiction. They're, bas- yeah. they're, they're what we'd call fan fiction today, and just comic form. And there were tons of this stuff being done. Yeah. And in 75, uh, so when Comiquette first opened, um, it was mostly by fans of the of the artist Moto Hagio, who mm. we briefly mentioned last time. She's one of the tw- the group of 24 that are the the original wave of female shoujo manga artists, female girls comics artists. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, originally in 75, it was a small one-day marketplace for doujinshi, fanzine, and fan art producers. It had 32 sellers and about 600 attendees in 1975. By comparison, in 2012, it lasted three days, had 35,000 sellers, (laughs) and over half a million attendees. Yeah. And Comiquette is very, very important for many reasons, not the least of which is 
Comiquette um, basically ended up becoming a factory in some ways for manga um, experimentation and manga artists to come out of that would eventually go mainstream. Mm-hmm. Like at this point, what was happening is we were starting to see people, they would do fan work and then eventually they would graduate to doing proper you know, manga. Yeah. Um, also, they were trying different stuff. And so they were injecting, you know, we'll call alternative styles and alternative approaches into the manga consciousness, so to speak, even if it was just on the fanzine, small press level. Yeah. And I'm sure that some of that probably also started to leak up into the mainstream stuff eventually as well. It it does, and that was why uh, the uh, the Comiquette, though, is uh, it's like I consider it kind of more of an '80s thing for what you're getting at. Yes, when I it see that when it started, the closest you can think of it is uh, if you remember in the early '70s here in North America, uh, mm-hmm. we had Star Trek conventions. Yes, and it it was basically that that um, the fans would come out, they'd bring their own stuff, they'd have like uh, they'd have uh, fan products, fan stories. Uh, they discuss, like, the old, like, for the Trek ones, the old shows. They come up with, like, re- letter-writing campaigns, things like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was kind of that idea. Mm-hmm. And then it, it when you get to the 80s, it, it takes off. And that was one of the big things. Um, like you said, it became a farm that a lot of the bigger companies would go to 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 look for up and coming artists that they could then hire to do stuff for them. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons why in the eighties, they didn't bring the hammer down on it. Right. Um, yes, we should explain about that. So what you've got is people producing like stories that with the characters of popular comics that have, that of course are copyrighted stories, mm-hmm. but unlike taking the, you know, the Disney approach or some, some other, corporate approaches they basically say you know these as you said these kids are actually turning out stuff that's helpful and it's a good you know it's a good thing for a young artist to do this stuff so we're just gonna let them go with it Mm -hmm. i've always read though that also japan's copyright laws have a little bit to do with that the way they're written um it's perfectly possible for me to do you know a hundred issue dragon ball um comic and just because i've done that I can't suddenly claim to Toriyama that my copyright is equal to yours or something like that. Right. Uh, or that your copyright is in the public domain because you've let me do it or something like that. Right. Uh, I can produce work based on yours and sell it. And unless you decide to stop me, there's no, there's nothing involved. Like there, there's no harm, no harm done. And uh, we're not going to worry about it. Whereas in American stuff, if technically, if I produce, you know, massive amounts of Star Trek fan fiction in theory, I could harm the Star Trek copyright eventually. Yeah. It didn't work out that way for various obvious reasons, but that's one of the reasons why periodically Paramount has clamped down on Star Trek fan fiction and fan productions, at least part of the reason anyway, is because the way American copyright law is written, unless you defend your copyright, challenges can actually result in you losing it. Yeah. The the other thing too, though, because um, if you remember when you do start getting into the 90s, even in Japan, they did start... um, they did start shutting down some of the fan stuff. Mm. Um, Cause that was where something else that comes out of this period that ties in a great deal to the comics. And that was um, you had the garage kit industry started up. Right. And that was people who would, would uh, produce model kits of different characters. And they'd maybe some of them would only be like, say 20, a hundred would be like a normal run. 
and it wasn't a big deal. And the companies let this kind of thing happen because they saw it as, as good publicity. Mm. But then when you start getting to the end of the decade, it's the same thing like Paramount with the Star Trek stuff. If Paramount currently isn't worrying about a Star Trek anything, they kind of turn a blind eye mm. because they figure at the very least it's keeping their property in the public eye. But as soon as they decide to do a new series, all of a sudden out come the uh, cease and desist orders. Yep, which is exactly right. Yeah, mm-hmm. They were willing to let people do it and even make fan TV series. Well, it was only the movies coming out, but as soon as they yeah. do their own series, they don't want that confusion. So, yep. cease and desist, left, right, and center. And that's it. It worked kind of the same in Japan. Um, one of the mm. things that you also saw happen uh, mid '80s, going into the late '80s, with mm. uh, like the uh, Komiketo and uh, different things like that, the people who started out doing fan works would then produce their own works. Mm. And and that, that worked out because, again, remember at this time, like we were just saying, there are hundreds of these weekly magazines coming out, and they're always looking for content. Yep, they're always looking for talent, always looking for content. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really talk about this last time, actually, but we probably should take a moment to discuss this. Mm-hmm. Especially since I suspect it may be the result of the 80s, and definitely as a result of the Shonen Jump way of doing things, Okay. Mm-hmm. A manga artist in Japan works a little differently than a manga artist here in North America. They work a little differently than a comic artist here in North America. Um, Because you need to produce content weekly as opposed to monthly, which is the North American standard, your average manga artist in Japan is basically kind of the head of an assembly line. Right. Where there will be a manga artist, uh, maybe a writer as well. They may or may not be the same person. Mm-hmm. And then underneath them, there's a whole team of artists that are basically doing the grunt work to help get that manga out. Right. Um, generally speaking, this can range anywhere from one or two to, I suspect it is top Toriyama probably had like five or six or more. Um, but I definitely know that they use a system where your average artist is a bunch of assistants, where the artist does something like the pencils, I believe, and then... They um, let the assistants do most of the actual inking and different steps and the backgrounds and everything else. Like It's almost like the artist themselves becomes almost more like a director, mm-hmm. if you want to use the film term. And then they've got all these other artists who are doing different pieces that are providing all that, that basically go into the final assembly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not too different from how we do it here, though. Okay. Because, I, again, I think we've mentioned this before. What happens here, the way it used to work is a comic book would have a writer, mm-hmm. uh, probably a penciler, yep. an inker, a letterer, a colorer. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have what they would call a plotter. A plotter would be right. somebody that would, would do the, the basic story, kind of like the basic, what they nowadays, the I guess the cool kids call it, the basic beats of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have an embellisher, mm-hmm. which was somebody who would um, add effects to the art, things oh, like that. Okay. Japan kind of works the same. They divvy up a little different because what they'll do is a lot of times you'll have um, the main artist will do the actual figures. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else will do backgrounds. Right. And then somebody else will do effects. And sometimes you'll have a guy who does the inking. Uh, sometimes they'll put the tone in. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it'll be like the background person will do the penciling, the inking, and the tone work for the whole background. Yep. 
like they divvied up a little a little weird compared to ours but it's not entirely different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what tends to be different is the volume because a japanese cartoonist is expected to do 30 to 40 pages a week for one story well it's not entirely true i mean i've noticed that at least with a lot of modern stuff they're usually only doing 16 to 20 pages they do but some of it doubles up sometimes yes yeah that's true sometimes they do have the double issues but but in they're doing an average of two or three pages a day basically they that that team has to be able to produce and um at least anyway and so that's that's a fair amount of work especially if there's going to be some special splash pages and other other effects and you know enhancements involved yeah so yeah because they're doing it a week yeah it yeah, that's that's a huge amount, a huge number. So people burn out a lot. Yeah, um, and a lot of that pressure goes onto the assistants. So going <laughs> back to our point about Comicat, so there's this huge need for competent assistants in the system. Yeah, and of course, the better assistants will often go on to become manga artists themselves, because of course, every um, every assistant, of course, has their own manga that they dream of eventually debuting once they get their chance. Yeah. No, I shouldn't say everyone, but most of them do. Just like in Hollywood, I imagine, everybody's got a script that they want to sell. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, kind of. Um, except their odds are a little higher in the manga industry because, as is noted, there are so many comic books out there and so much content that's being produced. Getting your stuff, if you're half decent, getting it produced is not that difficult. Like, like Getting it actually to air, so to speak, and in front of an audience is not really that tough. It it can. There's kind of been some twists in the last like twenty years. Well, that will... okay, getting it to air, so to speak, in Shonen Jump, okay, if you're only aiming for the top, is more difficult. I would agree with that. Yeah. But if you're but if you're going for one of the lower tier manga, I would imagine there's a lot more variability there. Again, depending on what you want to do. Yeah, it's 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 easier than here because again, you've the the biggest thing that that Japan has going for for its comic industry is that it has a huge diverse audience. Yes, it does. And that that means you can publish different kinds of stories and what makes that important is because there's always a variety of stories, there's always something new to become the next big thing. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. The thing that killed our industry back in the 90s was that once Image made all the money, everybody did Image. And then when Image was no longer cool, there was nothing to replace it. Yep. And that's the crash. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll get to some crashing pretty soon. We better get back <laughs> on our historic track. Because mm-hmm. um, there is a big manga crash coming, but we'll we'll get to that in a bit. Um <laughs> So, so 1980s happened, and at the beginning of the 80s, I mentioned some titles, but at the beginning of the 80s, there's really one title we've got to mention, um, that the one title to rule them all, so to speak, of course, is Dragon Ball, mm. uh, which starts, I believe, uh, it, Dragon Ball starts in 83, if I remember right. Yeah, the, the original's early 80s. The, the, the original, yeah, I believe the original is uh, 83. And sorry, eighty four, December eighty four. Sorry, December eighty four. Um, Dragon Ball started appearing in Weekly Shonen Jump by Akira Toriyama, and uh, he'd already had a mega hit with Doctor Slump, which yep. had been running since the late seventies. Um, and he decided to do something a little more action adventure oriented with uh, the original Dragon Ball, not entirely to be 
confused with Dragon Ball Z because Dragon Ball Z, of course, is like non-stop fighting, and we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but the original Dragon Ball was a little more, um, a little more adventure-oriented, shall we say? Yeah. Um, and Dragon Ball itself, of course, is based loosely. The original one is basically loosely on the Legend of the Monkey King mm-hmm. from uh, China, uh, one of the four great Chinese classics, which is a high-end um, fantasy novel, more or less, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, the Monkey King's. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Wu Kong, the Monkey King Wu Kong, and uh, who's called Son Goku in Japanese, I believe, or something close to that, which is where. The Goku's name comes from in Dragon Ball. Yeah. And um, how he travels acro- travels with a monk across this demon-infested landscape to um, help the monk reach uh, paradise or something to that effect. I don't mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly what is what their goal is, but basically it's, you know, the monkey king kicking lots of demon butt. <laughs> That's a simple version of it, which is pretty much how, you know, go, uh, Dragon Ball works out with the character of the monk basically being replaced by Bulma. Yeah, kind of. That's kind of... It's very loosely based on the legend of the Monkey King. Yeah. It kind of goes his own way with a lot of things. Um, so you can't say it's it's not an adaptation so much as he's just taking pieces of it that he likes. Yeah, he did. And he did that with a lot because it's it's an adventure. Like at one point, Goku fights Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And... and... There, there's this like weird evil empire trying to take over, and as I recall, I think Dragon Ball is set in the uh, world of Doctor Slump. I think it's the same setting. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I think it is because Doctor. Hmm? Sorry, go. Oh no, I was gonna say because Doctor Slump was like crazy popular. Hmm, I believe it. No, no, I believe Doctor Slump was here. The only thing is, doesn't Doctor Slump basically take place in a modern version of our world, kind of? Or is it just really vague about that whole thing? It's kind of vague. It's again, it's another one. It's it's this weird cartoony world, and he kind of throws whatever he likes in because, like, Superman shows up regularly in it. Oh, okay. And and there are the these weird little like alien guys, little alien Cupid guys that show up, and it's just Doctor Slump, as I recall too. It was supposed to be like a Doctor Who parody. Mm. That's why he kind of he kind of looks like a greasy Tom Baker. Oh, really? I didn't know that, huh? Yeah, and, and it was just Toriyama throwing in everything he liked into one big wacky kind of story. Yep, yep. Oh, it definitely was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, yeah, it was it was influential. It was one of the things that kept the whole um, the more cartoony style going in, um, in Shonen Jump at that point. Yeah. When a lot of the other stuff was more Gekiga-influenced and more serious. Yeah, well, there... Yeah, there was a weird mix because, like you were saying, because um, the early '80s is kind of when we, uh, around here, we started getting our mitts on these things, mm-hmm. and it was intermittent. But you get you get one, and and I've I've got issues that have like uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure in it, which is this like kind of over the top tough guy story, mm-hmm. and the ones that I have was uh, it was post Hooked and Oken. Right. But the guys that did uh, Hook No Ken were doing, I think it was like called something like Cyber Blue. Okay. Which was Hook No Ken in a cyberpunk setting, basically. Oh, okay. I've never and, heard of that one before. And hmm. it, it was this weird, like, gritty thing. And yeah, had the, uh, oh, what was the one? It ran forever about the, uh, about like the tough guy high school. Oh, 
Um, oh, I can't remember the name. Crap. No, it wasn't. I remember. No, it wasn't. I know cr- what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about, but. Uh... Yeah. Oh, uh. Sakigake Otoko Juku. Okay. Yeah, it was. It, it's like tough guy school. It was about these delinquents, and then they had this one. It was uh it was uh this weird kind of South mm-hmm. Parky sort of Tarzan parody was running at the time. I've seen that one. Yeah, and the the one with the 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 little little round headed guy who they each story is a parody of a different kind of story. Okay. And it's just like wacky over there. And and it is. It's this bizarre just mix of stuff. Mm. All kind of And and they were they were doing that in the 80s cuz again it was it was it was that idea of um they were experimenting and they were always looking for the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they would they would mix things up in weird ways. You mentioned City Hunter. Yeah. And oh, C- yeah. City Hunters people ostensibly consider it like an action story. It's oh, it's like Miami Vice kind of thing. But it's it more is. it's more of a soap opera really. Sort of. It's it's like a wacky comedic action soap opera. Kind of. I mean, it, it pretty much runs No, it's pretty formulaic. I mean, each mm-hmm. episode um it's City Hunter for general reference is about a private detective in Japan named mm-hmm. Ryo Seba who's basically um yeah, he's like he literally looks like he walked out of Miami Vice. Mm-hmm. Um, he is like <laughs> actually the most badass, competent. Um, oh, what's the basic way to describe him? He is a super badass, competent, uh, you know, crack shot, um, incredibly capable detective guy mm-hmm. who also happens to be the world's biggest, you know, drunken lech. Um, and heavy on the let. He's a super pervert. Which he's and, horrible at. Which he, and he's horrible <laughs> at. Yeah, he's incredible at combat, but he's incredibly bad at almost everything else, except he's not, he's okay with the detective stuff. Mm-hmm. And so each week, some damsel in distress will show up. He will um, letch on her. His assistant, whose name escapes me at the moment, will hit him with a giant hammer to mm-hmm. get him to lay off damsel in distress of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they'll find out that her father, uncle, brother, sis, sister, cousin was um, involved in some shady stuff and the adventure will begin. And then it, from there it plays out like a fairly typical pulp adventure with some you know weird humor left there. And at some point our hero who plays it goofy most of the time, when the time comes, will turn into an astonishing badass and basically beat the bad guys to death. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, literally. Um, but usually he'll just like impress them and scare them with his like sharp shooting and such to the point where they'll just give up. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, he'll lech on the girl. Um, she'll push him away. His assistant will probably hit him with the hammer again. And that'll be the end of that story. Mm-hmm. But they would do ones too that were, were like depressing. Cause as I recall, didn't he like, uh, not know who his family was or something? Something like that. I've only re- like I've watched some of the TV shows and uh, maybe about a dozen, ep- no, about 20 episodes of the original TV show. I got a DVD set of it a couple of years ago cheap, so I was watching some of them. Mm-hmm. I've read a few of the comics, so I don't know m- 
you know, again, they seem like fairly goofball detective stories to me. I wouldn't say there was a big background, but maybe there was one running, kind of an overarching one running. Yeah, because we got mostly the the comics, and this is before any of us could read them. Mm. But I do remember they'd do, and they would do, like, the comics would do comedy episodes. Well, it is meant technically to be a comedy. Yeah, and, well, because it's, again, it's, it's, comedy. it's that hodgepodge, because that wacky action comedy thing, that was one of the things you started seeing a lot more of in the 80s. Yes, yep, that's definitely true. Although, Gona Guy was technically doing that in the 70s. Yeah, he was, but Gona, Gona Guy's idea of, of a lighthearted comedy was a, a little... It, it, it was a lighthearted comedy in the Shakespearean tradition in that <laughs> only half the cast would die a horrible, violent death by the end of the series in the comedy. Okay, you got me there. Okay, and, you got me there. And that, was, and that was one of the things, I think, when you got to the 80s, you also started mm-hmm. to see kind of more optimism in that. Right. Well, it was a very optimistic period. The Japan in the 80s was a, like, in some ways was a freaking paradise. I mean, it mm. was one of the high points of uh, human um, uh, capitalist culture in some ways. I mean, mm. they were literally flush with money. I mean, everyone was happy. Everyone was successful. There were jobs everywhere. There was money everywhere. You know, people mm. were having a grand old time. Yeah, and I, I think, too, that that was uh, kind of uh, the, the the reaction to, to the mm-hmm. 70s, because the 70s were kind of a, a darker period. You also, it's something to keep in mind. The 80s, just like in North America, the 80s is also the era of the children of the baby boomers. Yeah. That, that would be our counterparts in Japan. Um, so we're looking... And Japan does have a baby boom. They did have one. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at um here the the kids that are reading these comics that we're just talking about right now are basically the gen xers of japan yeah that'd be that'd be around our age yeah and they're being produced by baby boomer basically mm-hmm. um some some baby boomers and some of what we what in north america would be called the greatest generation as well yeah uh kind of a mix of cuz tezuka of course is like not a baby boomer He's, no. he's from well before that period. And so are a lot of the older guys, like Ishinomori is. But I think Konakai might actually be a baby boomer. Uh, yeah, yeah, he'd be like our parents' age. Yeah, yeah, I, he I would be. He'd be like the generation just before. Because he would have been, he started in like the, the late 60s and he would have been in his 20s. Right. And so at this point in the 80s, we're... You know, it's a new generation that's coming in, that's reading the stuff, and they want stuff that's a little more lighthearted, that's yeah. you know a little a little less dark, because their parents have just lived through the dark, polluted times when Japan, you know, <laughs> was basically a nation of factories all working working themselves to death, mm-hmm. and now it's the affluence that comes after that, and they're enjoying it, and it's reflected in their media of the time. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so to continue, since we keep jumping around, so Toriyama <laughs> does Dragon Ball. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a huge hit. Um, mm-hmm. And will, of course, be followed a little bit later, a couple years later, by Dragon Ball Z, mm-hmm. which literally changes the entire boys' comic industry in Japan. It breaks everything. It breaks everything. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. Yeah. Cause... Um, and also, but before we get to Dragon Ball Z, we should note that the other thing that you'll see um, it popping up in the 1980s is you'll see more seinen stuff popping up, mm-hmm. which is the... Because what we're seeing is, as we referenced, um, that we now have basically porn comics coming out, but we're also seeing 
stuff that's targeted towards a more mature audience. Yeah. Um, as I talked about last before, seinen, of course, means like a period of change or changing years, basically, is the, what the Chinese characters would translate to. And it's basically meant for people that are in their 20s, you know, like university age and up till maybe about 30 or so. And, of course, there's also comics because they've been around long enough for a, for uh, mature men as well. There's mm -hmm. actual, I don't remember what they're called. There is a name for them, but the ones that are basically over 30. Right. Um, and there are also ladies comics that literally they're called ladies comics. Uh -huh. Ladies comicsu, they call them, <laughs> which are literally uh, women's comics that are meant for like mature women as well that are coming out. As we said, there's comics for everyone on every subject at this point. Yeah. Cause, cause that's a good point. Uh, one of the things that comes out of the eighties mm -hmm. is, uh, the, uh, Jose comics. Yes, that's true. Which is kind of what you're getting at. Uh, Jose is kind of the, uh, female version of the Seinen stuff. Like Seinen comics are yeah, female Seinen, Seinen stuff basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it tends to be like, we might call it soap opera-ish, but it tends to be a little more deep, a little mm -hmm. more dramatic. Right. And that starts taking off during the uh during the eighties too. Yes, definitely. Like that was for comics wise, that was probably the uh how we said earlier that every decade kinda has its big movement. Mm -hmm. I think for the eighties that would have been the big movement for Japanese comics. Yep. And this is why the Japanese characters of the eighties, oddly enough, I'd say, are some of the most realistic like mainstream mm. character wise yeah. you're going to see a lot of uh, artists come out of the 80s uh, who draw in a more realistic quote unquote style like they're still manga characters but they're not uh, they're not the style that Toriyama uses they're not the style that um, a lot of people think of when they talk about manga mm -hmm. which is more of an anime style which again is closer to Toriyama's style yeah they're, the stuff in the 80s is a little more a little more like American stuff where the characters look more realistic. I mean, mm -hmm. there'll be some exaggerations, obviously. Yeah. But they actually do look more realistic than we're used to thinking about today in terms of manga styles. And uh, if you want to see examples of that, um, go look at things like uh, My the Psychic Girl, which came out in uh, America as well. That was a classic one. Yeah. Um, we've got Akira. Uh, what else? What are some of the other... Um, as I said... Um, Fist of the North Star is using that more slightly more realistic style. Mm -hmm. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is um, a, just a lot of stuff that was actually a fairly popular style during the eighties. Yeah, um, it was stylistically in shonen, and then of course in seinen, that's pretty much the standard style. Yeah, especially by the time. One of the things you got too that I think you're you're kind of hitting at mm -hmm. was you got more emphasis on character in the eighties. And it was, again, that idea, I think because the more dramatic stuff was, was picking up, people wanted their characters to be more fleshed out. Right. Like, even into the 70s and the 60s, the more serious stuff, the characters tended to be um, either agents of the plot. Yep. Or the, they would drive the plot, and they would have just enough personality and depth to keep things moving. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't get a lot of really character introspective stuff. No. Well, they're mostly action stories. At least the Shonen Jump stuff is. Yeah. But even like the even the more soap opery stuff from the earlier ages, it tended to be kind of more melodramatic. Hmm. I could see that. 
and that that was again um a lot of people say like say the Jose movement happened because you had the fans of that melodramatic soap opery stuff from like the 60s and the 70s mm-hmm. that they were a little older now a little more mature and they wanted something that likewise was a little more mature yeah makes sense I mean, you've got an aging comic reading population, so naturally the comics are going to grow with them. Yep. And that was the thing that we never we never quite got the hang of here, because here the attitude was always comics was something you did for a few years, you moved on, the next group came in. Mm-hmm. And then exactly. when you got to the, uh, the, the middle, late 80s, where the company started realizing there were long-term fans, nobody knew what to do with them here. Right. Which goes back to the whole point about the uh, the whole comic witch hunt that happens in the 1950s mm-hmm. really held back um, our comic industry in a lot of ways. Yeah, there it's it's odd actually. I would say that our comic industry up until up until then was actually running ahead of the Japanese one. I'd say we were actually more advanced than they were. Yeah, but after that, we fell horribly behind. And it took a long time for us to catch up. And in fact, you could even possibly even argue that we still haven't quite caught up with them and maybe never will because of the way things have worked out. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd think um, it's, a, it's an interesting point because what happened with us, yeah, when our comics died, the newspaper strips kind of kept going and, and kept appealing to different audiences. But then when you got to the 80s, those started to go in decline too. Right. But I could kind of maybe see that in another like five or ten years, we could have an uptick because you've got the the kids who grew up in the 2000s and that with the Japanese stuff who got used to this idea of, oh, I can do a comic book that's just like a slice of life story. It doesn't have to have Batman in it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah I can totally see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, things are changing, but... Anyway, but I still think that we're we're behind mostly because of that damn commission. If they, uh, if, you know, if the seduction of the innocent thing had <laughs> happened, I think we would actually be well ahead of them. Well, um, and, and actually, yeah, I, I, I could easily see because, for example, in Japan, they had their pulp period too, just like we did. You know, by pulp, you know, where there were the stories coming out with uh, pulp fiction coming out every week in different magazines, etc. Uh-huh. Except theirs transited into becoming manga based yeah Yeah. and mind you they still had and i think they still do actually have actual pulp fiction magazines in japan um but there's you know translated to be more manga based whereas because of the whole seduction of the innocent thing worth and commission ours didn't when that when that time came to trend to transition ours was locked in you know as comics as kids stuff and it had to stay there for another decade or two until that kind of all wore off and as an end result, theirs ended up being, you know, exploding into all these different genres and taking all these different approaches, whereas ours just stayed superheroes for the longest time. Well, that kind of Archie's. Yeah, but that kind of happened again because we had our big renaissance at the beginning of the 80s. Yes, we did. That's true. But I think what happened there is you didn't really have the uh, the numbers to sustain it. Mm-hmm. And then when you had the black and white glut, that right. di- that cut down on the quality of the material. Mm-hmm. And then you had the Marvel and DC move in the mid-80s, and that kind of brought us right back to where we were before. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, okay. I and, can see that. And that's where, like, we've been stuck ever since, that it, yep. it it's even today, like, when anybody talks about comic books in North America, they're talking, like, superheroes. Yeah, pretty much. Even though, like, that hasn't been the 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 base of the North American comic industry for a while now. No, it hasn't. But, well, but, but that's what people think of. I mean, that's <clears> the natural association. I mean, you can't really help that. No, and, and again, it's really bizarre because it's that idea that for our comics now, like Archie, issue for issue, I think outsells like a Marvel or a DC. I think that's been the case for a very long time actually yeah but it's it's not what comes to mind like people don't even think of it as as a comic book no they it's just background noise for most people i Mm -hmm. think and even when you see like any kind of north american like show or that that talks about the comic industry they never mention stuff like that they never like mention archie at all no no i can see that hmm and that is unfortunate. And I think, yeah, and I think again that comes from from the eighties when the uh, when the black and white glut kind of killed comic shops, and Marvel and DC finally got their chance to swoop in. Yep, I think so. All right, so let's uh, continue on then. Um, so the eighties is the same in decade, lots of stuff, lots of variety. Mm-hmm. We've we kind of you know we've been talking about this for forty minutes, so I think our audience <laughs> has the has the point at, at, at this point. <laughs> All right. Although there's so, there, there's two '80s things that I think you have to kind of think of. Okay, let's, let's hear it. Because two things that start. One of the things that starts in the '80s, and it's partly because of like the comicette, it's partly because of the garage industry, the dojinshi thing, mm-hmm. is you start to see the comic books get tied in more with the merchandise and the animation. That's true. They start to become inseparable at this. Whereas, as prior, there was a lot of overlap, but comics were still seen as their own thing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the other thing I think that you get that happens for for a few weird things is by the middle of the 80s, you get this huge preponderant of, like, female lead characters. Hmm, that's true. And it ha- it happens, I think, because number one, like we say, the Jose thing takes off. So people go, well, there's female readers. And what happens in like the early decade, they realize, and I'm doing finger quotes here, if you make the hot chick the main character, you can show more of her. That's true. And you mean that in every sense of the word. It de- depends on, on what story it is. And then it leads to that weird thing where for, for a little while, there there's like no male action heroes in any like the Japanese comics and stuff. I would disagree. I mean, okay, well, let's hit 1988. Okay. okay? And in 1988, Dragon Ball Z comes out. Yeah. Okay. And as you're adequately, as you accurately pointed out earlier... It breaks the comic industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dragon Ball Z comes out, and uh, it literally becomes the most popular thing since like Tetsuan Adam Astro Boy pretty much aired. I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard to undersell Dragon Ball Z <laughs> in the Japanese industry. Um, well, in just in general, in comics and that in general, it's hard to undersell Dragon Ball Z. In fact. I suspect pretty much everyone in our audience has probably heard of Dragon Ball Z. Many of them have probably seen it. Um, It took a while to get over here, but once it did, it eventually was successful. Mm -hmm. Surprise, it's successful everywhere it's aired. Yeah. Um, It shifted from uh, being the more adventure manga to becoming a 
a fight manga is yeah. the best way to describe it. And it set the new standard. It literally set the new template for the whole shonen boys comic industry mm-hmm. just by being so ungodly popular. <laughs> Um, you're, you, you know, you're laughing because you know, I'm underselling it right now. Just how popular Dragon Ball Z was. Yeah. There's there, there, the only, the only thing I can think of that came close to popularity and people out there are going to go, huh? But Rob's going to laugh was at slam dunk. <laughs> yeah. Cause yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was actually, it never, it didn't make it over here, but it definitely was. Yeah. Yeah. Now we can talk about that in the nineties. Cause that was the weird thing. Like Dragon Ball Z and slam dunk. Like was everywhere for yeah, for a few years. Yeah. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Slam Dunk for those who don't know, and but you can guess is a basketball sports manga. Yeah, uh, and during the nineties, it was super popular. Yeah, um, right up there with Dragon Ball Z, and I think Slam Dunk was also, I'm pretty sure, was a Shonen Jump comic as well. Yeah, it was. It was if it wasn't Shonen Jump proper, it was one of their affiliates. Yeah, because Shonen Jump also, we didn't talk about this, Shonen Jump was so popular and was making so much money, they created uh, in the early 80s, apparently it was uh, 1985-ish, they created, and this is not an exaggeration, they created um, Shonen Sunday, Monthly Shonen Jump, Weekly Shonen Magazine, and Shonen Champion. Yeah. And all of those come out around the same time. Because in the late 80s, Shonen Jump just has so much of an audience and everything, they split off into five different phone books. (laughs) Some of them are weekly, some of them are monthly, but for the most part, they're they're out there. I think Shonen Champion as well was more focused on the Seinen one. I think that's where a lot of the Seinen stuff comes from is Shonen Champion, if I remember right. Yeah, because when you got to the the late 70s, they kind of tried starting this. But when you got to the 80s, a lot of the bigger companies started splitting up uh, what they did. They they do different kinds of books. Mm-hmm. So Shonen Jump would do like, okay, we want a comedy one. We want um, a serious one. We want mm-hmm. a dramatic. And companies would do that. They'd be like, we want like a, like a boys action, like a girls action. We want like a sports. And, and that kind of... That's kind of important too because you start seeing mm. things grouped more specifically. Yeah. Like like we were saying, when you get to the early eighties, it's hard to really peg down what some things were. Yes. Is it a comedy? Is it serious? Is it action? Is it soap opera? But when you start getting to the end of the uh, the eighties, because they're divvying things up like that. Mm-hmm. they start getting the hang of, of what makes what, and you can really start to see the formulas coming out. Yep. 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 Well, it's the era, yeah, where they start figuring out, quote, unquote, what works. Yeah. So we're starting to see more and more formulas. So each of these now five shonen titles that are coming out have a slightly different focus and probably have a slightly different house approach and house style at this point. Yeah. All of which are targeted towards whatever, you know, whatever they think works. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, so Dragon Ball Z breaks the, uh, everything, breaks, the indis- breaks everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as an end result, everybody and their brother copies Dragon Ball Z. Surprise. Yeah. I mean, yeah, everyone loves it. So everyone thinks this is absolutely the way to go. And it creates what is known generally today as the shonen fight manga genre. Yeah. I mean, there are ones like 
JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, they were basically shonen fight manga, or well, they were action shonen action manga. Mm-hmm. But shonen fight manga is its own animal, and that basically <laughs> is Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, like there's no other way to say it. It's Dragon Ball Z. Um, for those who aren't familiar, um, the shonen fight manga formula runs really simple. Um, you've seen Dragon Ball Z. You've seen it. We mm-hmm. have a hero who usually spends most of his time um, powering up in one form or another. He's got to constantly become more and more powerful because more and more powerful enemies keep popping up. And he has to find out ways to defeat these new and powerful enemies. Um, except it's done over in a more serial format. You might be used to you know, a hero each week on an animated series learning things. Well, this is done over a long period of time. It's delineated. <laughs> sometimes, some, sometimes he's referred to as tournament manga. And there's yeah. often tournaments in them where, yeah, I mean, they'll have a tournament arc and it will run for years. Yeah. Where this endless supply of the hero and his buddies face off against this endless selection of villains. And, yeah, our hero is constantly learning new power-ups and evolving. And that's that's the attraction of the whole thing, just watching the main character power up more and more and more and defeat villains. Yeah, there's... there's you can get it more specific. Um Mm-hmm. It happens because in the original Dragon Ball, there's this really long story where the two main characters enter this like big martial arts tournament, mm-hmm. and that part of of Dragon Ball was crazy popular. So Dragon Ball Z is that, and right. what the formula is is you've got your hero, and a bad guy or a group of bad guys shows up, and they're like totally awesome and unstoppable. Right. They kick our hero's ass. Our hero finds out he's got to like power up by learning the new secret whatever technique Mm -hmm. and it usually involves finding like the ancient master who knows this technique and our hero struggles through it um the hero sidekicks valiantly fight against this like powerful foe get their ass handed to them the hero finds this like teacher after struggling learns the secret that no the power was in you all the time or whatever gains the technique shows up kills the bad guy Everybody's happy until the next even more awesome or bad guy shows up. Yep. Hero gets his ass kicked, finds out, oh, to beat him, you have to learn this secret technique with this mask. Goes and wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah, pretty much. Like that's Some version of that, yeah. That's the formula, and you find out after Dragon Ball Z, everything becomes that. Yep. Because it worked so well. Yeah. That the entire industry, at least the entire boys' comic industry, I'm sure part of the girls too, um, well, basically can... just follow that formula. Well, it does because what ends up happening in the early 90s mm-hmm. is you get the girl version of that. You mean Sailor Moon? That's right. Sailor Moon is Dragon Ball for girls. Yeah. Yep. And they were originally, I think they even, like, Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon, I think, actually aired like back to back or something back in the when they were actually first on TV, the, the cartoon version. Anyway, mm-hmm. I mean, I th- I think I'm pretty sure they aired back to back. I'm not, I have to, yeah, whatever. Anyway, but the key point is, is I know they were marketed together. Yeah, you could literally see everything. Here's the Sailor Moon stuff, and here's the Dragon Ball Z stuff, and yep. it was literally marketed together in commercials and everything. Yep, and it's it's because essentially it's the same form. Like Sailor Moon is considered. Um... It's like a magical girl story. Right. And you had those before. Yep. But it didn't have it didn't have that idea that, okay, now when these bad guys show up, I have to learn the new super ultimate whatever technique because it's the only way to beat them. 
Mm-hmm. Like that came from Dragon Ball. Sailor Moon adds that. And then you get just like the 90s is just copies of those. Like everything that comes out is either Dragon Ball or Z or Sailor Moon. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to describe it. K- kind um, kind of an exaggeration, but kind of not. Yeah. And um, to give you another perspective on this, where is it? Oh, there it is. Um, so looking at, I've got a sales chart here for Shonen Jump. Okay, so um, in, let's see, 1988, when Dragon Ball Z premieres, Shonen Jump, um, this is in millions per week, of course, is it a about a little about about 4.6 million copies per week uh-huh. okay um it gets up to about we'll say about by 1995 it gets up to 6.2 million copies mm-hmm. like it goes up by about almost 2 million copies a week <laughs> um thanks literally to dragon ball z yeah and i can pretty much prove this and you, you know how i can prove this mm. and this is this is where things get really amusing in a way um <laughs> Actually, wait. No, no. Sorry, I was looking at the wrong chart. Okay, let me reset, re- re-say that. Okay, so, so I can prove this because in 1989, um, <clears throat> when Dragon Ball Z premiered, it was sitting just under five million copies a week. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and then by 1995, when Shonen, when Dragon Ball Z finishes, um, it was up to just under seven million copies a week. Mm-hmm. So it had gone up almost two million copies a week, and that's and if you look at the chart that I'm looking at of a weekly Shonen Jump, I'll link to it in the show notes. You can literally see the point where show, where Dragon Ball Z starts. <laughs> it was already on the already going up, but there's this huge jump. Okay, <clears throat> and and here's the other way I can prove this is so in 1995, Dragon Ball Z finishes. Okay, <laughs> and Shonen Jump is just under seven million copies. A week, okay? Within about a year, they're back down to 4 million copies. Mm. Literally 3 million of their weekly view- readers were just there for Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. Like as soon as Dragon Ball Z finishes, the, their sales just took a... It's literally a cliff. They just drop right off. Yeah. And uh, it's scary. It is because there's a couple other things that I think sort of come into play at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, what ends up happening with anything is you're always, you know, like we were saying how things work here, you'd be a comic fan for like three to five years, then you'd move on, new guys would come in. Right, yeah. I think what you start seeing in, in Japan during that time is kind of what happened here in the 90s, that because mm-hmm. Dragon Ball Z made all the money, mm-hmm. everybody did Dragon Ball Z. When Dragon Ball Z was done, the interest kind of started to wane. Yep, and there really wasn't another next big thing to step in and take that place. No, there wasn't. And in fact, actually, looking at the weekly Shonen Jump chart, which I'm still looking at here, it's interesting. In 1997, suddenly it levels out. It suddenly the drop suddenly levels out at four million hits in 1997, and then stays there for a little bit, and then continues kind of to slowly wind down and go up and down. Mm-hmm. But do you know what came out in 1997? In Shonen Jump? What? One Piece. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that works. Um, One Piece starts in 1997. I don't think Naruto did. Uh, what year does Naruto start? Crap. Yeah. Um, let I, me just check. I think Naruto was later. I think that was like... Uh, I think it is too. But I think that was like... Check. I want to say no, 90, 97. Was it? Okay. Yeah, 97. So both Naruto and One Piece started in 97. 
And um, so there you go. Yeah. Okay. So both Naruto and One Piece start in 1997. Mm-hmm. Surprise. And so this is why it levels out. Yeah. Because the two new uh, contenders, basically, the, the replacements for Dragon Ball Z both start at that time. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, both of them, especially when they start, and you could say for quite a bit afterwards, are both using the Dragon Ball Z formula. Yeah, kind of. Um, I no, think they are, at least to begin with. Well, I think One Piece does. Naruto was a little different, and I th- we've mentioned this before. Um, okay, I see your point. I see your point, yeah. Because when Naruto starts, it's a totally different comic from what it becomes like a short time after. Because mm, like we said, when Naruto starts, it's basically modern times, but the feudal era never ended. Yeah, pretty much. And he comes from like, was it the, the, the village hidden in leaves or whatever? Yep. yep, the village hidden in mist or leaves or whatever, yeah. yeah. And and they're this ninja clan, and you very clearly see that the, the samurai are the government, and there's this society, and there's a world, and the ninjas take like different kind of jobs. They're considered like the, the disposable extras and Naruto and his buds are in class and they're apprentice ninja. And they take these kind of like the, the first one I remember was they were guarding a bridge mm-hmm. and it was them guarding a bridge. And it wasn't quite Dragon Ball. That sort of happens around the time they introduce Rock Lee and the other guys. Yes. Well, which is their first tournament. Yep. And then after that, it's Dragon Ball because then every story is, and then this guy shows up and we have to kick, and then they run into like Gara, who's like another one of these kids possessed by these ancient spirits and they kick his ass and eventually he becomes like their associate and if, if not their true friend and, and then these other even more massive guys that for some reason nobody thought to mention earlier on show up and yeah, then it, it swiftly becomes Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, it's supposed to be... Okay, yep, I agree with you 100%. The irony is is that One Piece has a slightly alternate perspective mm. where when One Piece first starts, there's it's an adventure, but it very quickly turns into Dragon Ball Z, mm-hmm. and then it turns back into an adventure book, which, which is still kind of a hybrid. I mean, it's still a child of Dragon Ball Z, but it changes a little bit. In fact, actually, I got, I got out of One Piece for a little while because it was just too Dragon Ball Z, especially... <laughs> For a little while there, towards in its early days, yeah, and then it eventually developed its own voice, its own style, and then after that, it's one of the greatest comics in the history of mankind. Um, but yeah, I mean, but they're both children of Dragon Ball Z, one way or the other, which is the point. Yeah, um, and it's not just them. You have to understand that if you read any comics from this period, there's a lot of Dragon Ball Z clones, like a lot of them. Well, and they 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 become because. One Piece did the smart thing that Mm -hmm. it's Dragon Ball Z to begin with, but because they have the different, like, Cs that are separated from each other, it doesn't have the problem that all the other ones do in, where, like I just said, okay, we've beat this ultimate guy, and then this other guy shows up, and he's like, oh, no, it's the legendary, blah, blah. And you're like, that would have been great to mention a little while ago. Like, how is it that we're only now talking about this? Whereas in in One Piece, whenever they go to a new land, everything's powered up. There's this new group of super awesome or bad guys. But you didn't hear anything about them because there's no connection between these two two settings. Yep. That nobody, the, the hazards to get from one of the seas to the other are so great, nobody ever does it. Well, at the one point, yes. After that, 
it sort of changes a bit. But yeah, you're right. As as they're getting deeper and deeper along the Grand Line, it just natu- everything just naturally powers up because they're going to more and more dangerous territory. Yeah. And um, I will say that Oda, uh, who writes it, because um, I, I read the I read it each week, and that he just, for example, had a payoff. Okay, that he set up a hundred stories ago, uh-huh. and it's just just this little thing was referenced a hundred stories ago, not a major, just this tiny little reference a hundred, and then now it just turned into a huge payoff that like saved our entire heroes' lives and everything, <laughs> and it keeps them, and it's like. It, that's the kind of thing that One Piece becomes after a while. It, it's just he is planning so far ahead. It's astounding, mm-hmm. actually, some of the stuff he does, um, and that's why I like it so much. But anyway, so <laughs> yeah, and when and the Dragon Ball formula gets applied. No, it gets applied to uh, sports manga. Yeah, um, it gets applied to golf manga, uh, <laughs> gambling manga, gangster manga. Um, I have even seen it applied, and this is not an exaggeration. To a manga about heart surgeons. Mm-hmm. There's one called Iryu. Oh, okay. And it's it's a manga about um, heart surgeons, except it plays out like a Dragon Ball Z story, mm-hmm. where the guy is actually having to compete against higher and higher skilled heart other heart surgeons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but effectively, it still plays out like Dragon Ball Z. He's got the sidekicks and everything, and it's just, and they make it work. That's the most astounding part of it all. It mm. actually works. And it's actually, they, they did a couple live action series based on it. And it's like really intense to watch and everything. And it's But it's basically still using the Shonen Fight formula. Yeah, sometimes it works. Because I know for even today, mm-hmm. I live in fear of that when I'm like reading a Japanese comic. Because mm-hmm. there are so many that I used to, like um, a good example for me was a Yu Yu Hakusho. Right. The first couple of like volumes of the comic were they were neat they were fantastic it was about this like this guy he's a total juvenile delinquent Mm -hmm. and uh anybody who's never read it the way it starts is he's this total juvenile delinquent he's a loser he's obnoxious he's he's one step removed from being a thug and Mm -hmm. he gets killed doing something nice he tries to save this like little kid from getting hit by a car and he dies and he ends up in the afterlife. And it, it's really funny because they stress that, no, the kid wasn't going to get hurt anyway. The kid was just going to get some minor injuries. So even this was pointless of you. But be, mm-hmm. but because he did something self-sacrifice like that, they couldn't send him to hell. Right. But he wasn't supposed to die yet. So they couldn't send him anywhere. And they end up, he gets sent back to earth and he's, he's sort of like a, a wandering hero who's going to deal with like supernatural problems and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the first few volumes, like they, they send him back to earth as kind of a test. He's not dead. He's not alive. And the stories are fantastic because they're these like weird, again, like very dramatic soap opery kind of things about him helping people on earth. Mm -hmm. And then he, they let him come back. He gets some like powers and it's interesting because then he's like hunting monsters and stuff and it's interesting. And then they get to this one part where they have to stop this demon prince and, and the ancient master that he had tracked down is like, you must learn this technique and enter his tournament. And I'm like, fuck out, no tournament. Cause that's how it ends. That's how like any Japanese comic book like ends. Well, they talk about that in Bakuman. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, which is a manga. I, don't think we've mentioned this episode anyway. No, because it um, comes. Baku- that's not till. Uh, it's not till like the teens. 
Okay, yeah. We'll, 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 we're, we're getting okay. there. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there eventually. Okay, well, I'll save it for later. We'll save that for okay. a bit later then. Um, but yeah, they talk about that. Um, mm. Shortly after the, yeah, Bleach will come in 2001. So actually that's yeah. that early 2000s one. But again, it's still using the Dragon Ball formula. And the Dragon yeah. Ball. Now this is not the state. Again, remember, that becomes the dominant formula. But in Japan, because their market is again so huge, there's still every kind of comic and every kind of story under the sun coming out. Yeah. It's just that the, this formula comes to dominate one form or another, Shonen Jump, which is the best-selling and top-read stuff. Yeah, I, I think what you're getting to is in the 90s, the uh, the comic book industry starts to contract. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to get less variety because there's less companies. And I think what's happening is like we were saying for the 80s, when you get to the 90s, a lot of the focus, the comic books have kind of become the test bed for the cartoons. Yes, yeah, they have. That they're now intrinsically tied. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was one of the reasons why people wanted to get their stuff into the the bigger publishers because you were more likely to get a show that would get you marketing that would get you more money yep also i would note you also going back to what we were talking about earlier the the character designs from the 90s also start being much simpler than the ones yeah. from the 80s and i'd say no small part of that is because they're trying to make animation friendly designs yeah i would uh yeah, because you do you get these weird. I used to call it CD-ROM style, because mm. anybody who remembers the original CD-ROM video games, you had these because of the way the graphics worked. Care like things in the CD-ROM games tended to be like big blocks of color, mm-hmm. and you got these weird uh, like the comic, the the dominant comic style was like bigger open areas with less line work. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's like you say, it was because they were looking more towards animation. Hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, you see a lot of the detail disappear from Shonen Comet. Yes. Yeah. From the characters, I mean. Yeah. Um, also, I noticed that that part of that, though, might be practical. Uh, because as they discovered, people were willing to accept the less detailed version, so to speak. Um you got to remember, the less lines means it's faster to produce as well. Yeah. I think there is a production element happening here as well. So it's ha- so you could argue that manga have been forced to a simpler style just from practicality over time. Um, for one reason or another, that more detailed style was popular in the 80s, and then it kind of slowly disappears in the 90s for, again, a style that's more animation-friendly, but also just plain more production-friendly in general. Yeah, there's. I think there's also kind of a stylistic thing because, again, I think when you get to the 90s, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. There's a rebellion against the previous thing. Right. Um, one of the things I think you also get in the 90s was um, the, the Jose style comics. Mm-hmm. They yes. also, they tended to be like more simple art, mm-hmm. uh, more simple like line work, bigger open areas, that kind of, And I think, right. again, that works its way in. Um, when when Sailor Moon hits, the industry thinks, wait, girls like violence too? And that draws from that style as well, that it's that more... Although the Sailor Moon comic had a lot of heavy line work, but it was, again, more of that open design. It's very open. Yeah. Uh, it's very more... It's almost more dreamlike yeah. in, its, in its presentation. But girls' comics of that period, now we're to the... Uh, was it Nakayoshi is, I think, the... I think Nakayoshi is the female version of uh, Shonen Jump. I might okay. be wrong, but I think it's the number one 
girls comic one. Um, I can check that. Um, but anyway, uh, but so most of the stuff that's in there has that kind of style. Yeah. Where it's much more dreamlike. It's much more soft. The lines uh, on the panels are very light and even have little gaps in them and such. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all very, it's kind of like a flowing, emotional, dreamlike experience to read these stories more than it is like this solid, dramatic story often. Yeah, and I think, and you start seeing again that kind of overlap. Yep. Because I think what's happening, you had that in, the, in when the girls' comics took off in the 80s, you had a lot of the guys' comics pick up some of it. Because it was new and different. Yep. And I think, again, in the 90s, you're starting to kind of see that swapping because of that. And I think, again, because the comic industry is contracting, mm-hmm. you're getting more people working together, I guess. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, they've they've divvied up the audiences. They've kind of, because of the different kinds of comics they did in the 80s, they now have set formulas Mm-hmm. They're kind of grouping it together, but you can't really necessarily do like um, just a specific golf comic and, and a tennis comic. There isn't big enough audience, but we can put them all together into like a sports comic. Right. And you'll get like the guy stuff and the girl stuff and it kind of commingles a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, That's true. I think you're kind of seeing some of that kind of thing happening. Mm. Okay. And then, it, see that. and then it goes to the animation because that's the goal. Like you were saying, everybody's moving towards animation-friendly designs, but that's starting to make everybody's comics look more alike because they're adopting the same kind of mindset when they're doing their design work. Hmm, that makes sense. You saw, okay. you saw some of that in the, uh, in the 80s too because in the 80s you had... Um, um, one of the things that pops up is you had animation magazines... Right. You had like role playing game magazines, you had uh video game magazines, and they'd all run comics. Right. Yeah. And a lot of their comics would draw from whatever whatever it was that they were they were they were the main magazine was relating to. Mm-hmm. And I think from like say the video game and even the role playing game ones, it looked a lot like the video game magazine comics, you did again start to see kind of that simplified design. Right. And that design working more towards another end because it was like it. Well, it's it's video game based stuff. Eighties mm. video game stuff was designed still fairly simple. When you got to the nineties, the CD ROM kind of stuff, you had more of that kind of style working into those comics. When those magazines and that would die off, and those cartoonists would move to whatever the other wherever it was they'd get their stuff published later on. The bigger ones, they'd bring some of their technique that would commingle with what was in there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's always cross-pollination going on. There's mm-hmm. always stuff going back and forth and left and right and up and down. And Yeah. Because, again, a lot of it, again, remember, comes with – there's that constant churn of artists as well and art assistants especially. Yeah. They're going through. And some of those assistants will be working in multiple industries or multiple styles or yeah. they'll be all over the place. And and there's also the thing, like uh, we, we mentioned this a few times, but to keep in mind what we're talking about are the – we're kind of trying to focus on the bigger trends mm. that there's still other things going on under the surface. Of them. And yeah, yeah, that tends to bubble up. Like the Japanese comic industry is still huge at this time, even though we're using words like contraction and, and, you know, magazines like going under net, it's still like mind bogglingly huge. Well, in the nineties, remember the 
Japan hits um, monetary shocks. You know, yeah. that's, that's the point where the, they hit their first taste of recession, basically, uh, which is still going on today. Um, and so as mm. an end result, you know, the, the glory days were over, basically. And so companies started to go out of business. I yeah. mean, not everyone didn't have the money they had before. Um, for a while there, there was even a huge downturn in animation, but we'll get to that when we do an animation episode. Mm -hmm. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, things were changing in the nineties. There's no question on that. Yeah. Okay. So anything else about the nineties we want to talk about? Um, I think that's kind of it. I think the biggest thing to take away about the nineties is that again, Mm -hmm. The formulas were solidified. I think part of that too is like you're saying, because the economy's starting to 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 slow down and and yep. collapse. The companies are looking to focus on what makes money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other big thing is that at this time you start seeing the comic books aren't just comic books; they're tied into like a bigger multimedia experience. Well, yeah, they're they're basically doing what Marvel maybe is trying to do or should be doing right now, mm-hmm. which is basically they should be using the comic books as a platform to come up with new properties that they can then use spin off into animation and movies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but from what I hear, they're not doing all that great a job of, but whatever. Um, but that's what's going on. And especially in the, it started in the eighties. It's definitely continuing on the nineties and will continue to modern day basically. Yeah. Where it's basically a test bed, especially the Shonen Jump stuff. Yeah, if you can get popular in Shonen Jump, you're almost guaranteed to get an animated series at some point. <laughs> How long it'll last? That's eh, up in the air, but yeah. you'll probably get one if you can get popular enough in Shonen Jump. Yeah, um, and uh, some of those series can run for a long time. For example, the One Piece animated series is running since I believe ninety eight, <laughs> ninety seven, or ninety eight. I think ninety eight because it would have debuted a year after. Yeah. And uh, One Piece has been running nonstop since 98. Mm -hmm. 1998. Think about that for a moment. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's hitting its 20th anniversary. Um, And it's not done yet. And according to Creator, it's going to be going for a while yet. And this TV show is still one of the most popular cartoons, even though literally there are people alive now who who weren't (laughs) alive when it was started and are now going to university. Think about that for a moment. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, so to continue on, so yeah, so we've got, so that's the nineties, mm-hmm. um, in the two thousands, it's kind of more of the same. I mean, uh, the two thousands, we get bleach, which you mentioned already, mm-hmm. uh, bleach comes in 2001 and it basically becomes the third of, we'll call it the Holy Trinity of boys manga for about the next decade or so. Yeah. Yeah. They, they call them, what is it? The, the, the millenn- the, the big millennial comics something like that yeah i've just heard them referred to as the big three or the yeah. big millennial but we're talking of course about one piece naruto and bleach yeah and uh up until literally like a year or so ago those three would were literally dominating the industry i mean yeah. the the industry was those three comics in terms of sales like yeah. they were so much of the industry that everything else was just a pale imitation compared to those one three <laughs> titles um, yeah only one of which is currently running, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. coming up. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Anyway, so um, so what else happens during the 1990s? Or, sorry, what happens? So what else happens during the aughts? Um, as I said, it's mostly more of the same. I mean, uh, in terms of... Uh, oh, yes, there is one other title, however, we should definitely mention for the aughts, mm-hmm. um, which is Death Note, 
which okay. comes out in 2003. Yep. Death Note um, was hardly the very first, uh, we'll call it psychological manga, but it definitely uh, set a new standard. Yeah. Um, Death Note, for those of you who aren't aware, which means you're probably living under a rock, but here it is anyway, <laughs> um, is about a um, kid named Light Yagami, a teenager, who finds a notebook and he discovers that it's the notebook of a death god. And so if he writes someone's name and or how they died in that notebook, they will die and they will die in that way. Mm-hmm. And he decides that he's going to use this notebook to purify the world and basically get rid of all the evil from the world and kind of make himself a new god, more or less. Yeah. Um, he doesn't quite start out that way, but eventually, he, you know, he kind of loses it to the whole power. Yeah. Um, now, what's interesting, if you're paying attention, is it more or less is still following the Dragon Ball Z formula. Mm-hmm. It is still ultimately a shonen fight comic. It's a big variant of the Dragon Ball Z Shonen Fight comic, but it ultimately is. Um, because as Light goes through, even though he's not uh, a good guy, so to speak, depending on your perspective. Well, he's, um, he starts that way. It just kind of goes downhill quickly. He kind of goes downhill. <laughs> and, he, and he fights a never-ending series of opponents who are, you know, L and the other detectives who are trying to stop him. Um, it's kind of... You know, you know what it is? It's kind of the Breaking Bad of manga. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Where you could, where it literally, I mean, the hero gets this power of a god and then he uses it to go on a crusade to, to fix the world. Except that he's not going uphill and becoming a great hero. He's basically becoming, a, you know, a devil, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the opponents that he's facing, instead of being evil, they're actually good guys. Kinda. Some are mostly good guys. Some are, some aren't. But mo, well, yeah. Anyway, there's some. You're right. Some are, some aren't. But but the key point again is is that it's kind of the breaking bad of manga. It's the breaking bad of the Dragon Ball Z formula, and it sets a new standard in its own way too by being psych- purely almost psychologically based rather than characters physically hurting each other. Well, except for these horrible deaths. <laughs> yeah. Well, I- Again, they don't physically hurt each other, usually. No, they do. It's just not directly. Yeah. And so there's that whole dueling aspect that comes out of it. Um, And that's a big thing. Oh, actually, we did miss something. But okay, we'll we'll get back to that in a second. We missed missed two. But when you mentioned uh, Death Note, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd say it's not exactly the Dragon Ball Z formula. It's the version you had before. Okay. Because it's not that, and then a new all-powerful guy shows up that he must learn a new technique. Everything for the comic is kind of there right at the beginning. And what he's doing is he's kind of learning new ways of using what's already there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the Dragon Ball formula is literally the new threat comes right out of nowhere. Right. And it's literally, we have to learn this specific technique get this specific power whatever like that that's kind of like it literally boils down to that right like i say they 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 add a few elements as death note goes on but essentially it's all right there Mm -hmm. and the stuff that gets added is stuff that kind of comes naturally from what's already there at the beginning 
it's a natural outgrowth of what's there to be. I yeah, I would generally agree with that. Because I would generally agree. I don't. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for yeah. you who haven't actually read it. But but yeah, okay, I would generally agree with that. Because that was the formula, the the Dragon Ball Z esque formula before Dragon Ball Z. Because it was it was always uh, the the one I would use as the best example of pre Dragon Ball Z. Dragon Ball Z would be uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Okay. Especially, okay, yeah. especially the third run when everybody had the stands, the mm-hmm. the weird little psychic buddy that was the manifestation of your power. Yes. Because the characters didn't develop new powers as the series went on. What was interesting is they'd come up with new ways to use the powers they already had. Mm-hmm. That nobody in JoJo's was powering up. They kind of do that in the first two parts. Mm-hmm. But it's not the this we must learn the specific technique is that they the the first two series are based on uh Hammond, which is this ultimate vampire fighting martial art, yep, and they're learning that, but they're a student of that from like right at the beginning of the book, but yeah, in the third one, nobody gets a new power as as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, the key to it is figuring out how the bad guy's powers work. Yes. And when you find out and you go back and you read them again, you're like, oh, that's what that was. Because again, it's not, it, it's the old version of that Dragon Ball formula where you have to come up with a new trick, but you're not mm-hmm. specifically developing something new. Right. Like that, okay. that weird power shift is what makes Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball Z. Mm. Okay. I could see that. Um, and yeah, I guess you're right. In that sense, it's not. It is. You're right. It is following more of the JoJo's formula. Okay, yeah. I can see that. I, I, I concede. Because those guys did do Dragon Ball Z before they did Death Note. Which one? Hikaru no Go. I was thinking that, but is Hikaru no Go Dragon Ball Z? It's a much better written Dragon Ball Z because they get more into the into the characters' mindset and the characters are characters. They're not just. I guess, I guess I, I've read Hikaru no Go. Yeah. yeah. Um. I yeah. Okay. I can see your point. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay, I can see your point. It is really because yeah, the constant new opponents with the new funky moves and everything. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It is. And the it it's it's. Hikaru has Sai, the the ghost who possesses the uh, I think it's his grandfather's go board. Yes. And. Sai is teaching him how to play and teaching him how to think like through the games and stuff. And, and it's kind of that Dragon Ball formula, but again, they set it up from the beginning and everything kind of comes out of what they set up. Mm -hmm. But it's still, again, it's, it's that Dragon Ball Z, you know, I have to improve. I have to power up. I have to learn this new, whatever kind of thing. Right. Okay. I hadn't thought about yeah. that, but yeah, you're right. And that and that comes out, and that one again, that was a, another another one in like the aughts that was just crazy popular. Yes, it was. As, as I recall, they uh, they they uh, credit that comic with bringing back the popularity of Go in Japan. Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. Prior to that, Go was on the decline, mm-hmm. and then it uh, then it re- there was a huge resurgence, not just Japan, Asia in general, but definitely Japan. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing, right? Any of these manga that come out and get popular, 
end up in Taiwan, South Korea, China, Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, you know, they end up all over Asia, basically. Mm-hmm. And they're usually just as popular in the other Asian countries as they are in Japan. Yeah. So, yes, it makes a huge deal. Okay, so yeah. um, what was the other thing? You said there were two things that I'd forgotten about the aughts. What were yeah. they? Well, the uh, getting into the late 90s, going into the aughts. Yes. The other thing that affects comics, and mm-hmm. this comes from... I don't want to just say animation, but it comes from, like we were saying, that the comics became tied into the multimedia package. Yes. The other big influence is, of course, I'm talking about Wallman. That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> no, that's not what I was going to say. What did you think I was going to say? I was pretty sure you were going to say Pokemon. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, of course, kids collecting shit. And making it you fight. Know, and making it fight. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And variants of that will pop up. Uh, Pokemon itself, I remember, is, yeah, mid-90s. and uh, But it takes a little while before it, you know, takes off and completely dominates the industry. At least the younger side of it. I mean, yeah. ultimately, Naruto and One Piece and that are aimed for kind of the, like, we'll call them the 8 to 14 set. Mm-hmm. But... The Pokemon stuff tends to be more is more like the six to twelve set. Like it's it's got a slightly younger take. You know, it's a slight, it's towards a slightly younger audience. It might even be four to twelve, really. It it does, and and that's an important part of it because there is one for slightly older people. Mm-hmm. And that was Pokemon for slightly older people would be what Persona, no. Persona games. No, 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 no. Which one? Yu Gi Oh. Oh, I guess that is for slightly older people. Yeah, yeah okay. Here, I'll, and, I'll, I'll buy that. And Yu-Gi-Oh! is another one of those examples. If you read the comic, mm-hmm. the first part of the comic has almost nothing to do with the cards. Well, no, it was just a weird... Uh, it, was a pos- it was a possessed kid that if you pissed him off, he could challenge you to a game to the death. Yeah, and he was playing things like Parcheesi to the death and <laughs> things like that. And, it was all these random games like rolling dice or yeah. whatever the dice one is one of my all-time favorites like that was a brilliant ending and mm-hmm. and it was again it was it was like a full-fledged comic and then what ends up happening is magic the gathering takes off uh mm-hmm. pokemon starts as like a card game in japan and it takes off yep and then they say make this about that card game because there there's a magic the gathering mm-hmm. story in the original Yu-Gi-Oh, and that's what Duel Monsters is. Yeah. It's it's literally Magic the Gathering. They don't call it that. They they just call it that card game from America. Yeah. And then it becomes that, and at that point it becomes Dragon Ball. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's true. Except it's a collecting things Dragon Ball, I agree. Yeah, and that's what, what Pokemon and, and Yu-Gi-Oh! And, and that whole kids collect it make it fight. It's the Dragon Ball Z formula, except I don't find a trainer and power up. I buy something. Mm. And that was where they discovered you can sell things to kids. And and then that becomes the whole, what the whole, for a long time, the animation industry, the comic industry, the tie-ins. It all becomes about kids collecting things and making it fight. Yep. Well, still is. I mean, they uh, they love that stuff. The kids love it, and the producers love it because it makes a ton of money. Yeah. Um, and pretty much everything for a while there, everything that was coming out in Shonen Jump, especially during the mid-aughts, mm-hmm. um, 
had a card game that went with it. Yeah. And a lot of Shonen Jump issues would often have cards in the in the magazine. Yeah. And so if you had to collect it each week to get the new cards. Yeah. That was part of the selling point. If you want your new One Piece battle game cards or Naruto battle cards, you had to slowly assemble the deck by what you were getting in your weekly magazines. Mm-hmm. Like there'd be a couple cards each issue. Yeah. And then they'd have booster packs and all this other stuff. And so, yeah, they were all doing that in one form or another. Yeah, because that was the thing. And that's, I think, um, at that point in the aughts is mm-hmm. when the, the merchandising and, and that surpasses the comics. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice, like, when you look at the sales figures, you can see that, like, after 2000, everything kind of levels off. Mm-hmm. But it's at like half or less where the sales were going, like going into like say the mid nineteen nineties for everybody, yeah. for everybody, yeah. And I think it's because what's happened at that point too is um, you don't have as many of the small publishers. Anyone that was making money got amalgamated into one of the bigger publishers, probably, yeah. Like for for a lot of them, so you don't mm. you don't have the experimentation. The audience is kind of starting to contract. Mm-hmm. I think in part because, yeah, like the for for comics, the animation is superseding things. Uh, you're mm-hmm. you're looking at the idea of doing live action movies of things. Yep, it's kind of like superheroes here. Nobody gives a shit about the Spider Man comic because I can just watch a two hour movie and I don't have to worry about who the hell is this guy and what's all this and that's not Spider Man. That's I don't understand it. Oh, the hell with it. Hmm. And I think you start kind of seeing that in Japan. Now, mind, their numbers are still huge. Yes. Like today, a shitty selling comic book in Japan is still putting out like 300,000 copies a week. Yeah. Whereas a good selling comic in in North America, if you're doing a thousand, like a hundred thousand copies a month, you're one of our top sellers. Yeah. Compare that a hundred thousand versus like three hundred thousand, and that's a crappy one. Yeah. Oh hell, because Shonen, yeah. Shonen Jump the, is still the biggest, and they're still at like two million copies a week. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, there's still two million copies a week, and that's with a competition from the internet. Yep. And like piracy, because let's be honest. These days, and this has been true for about a decade now, as soon as the Shonen Jump comic comes out, people are grabbing it, scanning it, and posting it online as fast as they possibly can. Well, the, I mean, that's the honest truth. They are. They're doing that, but what's also kind of countering that is uh, a lot of the Japanese publishers have really embraced the uh, digital online publishing. Mm, that's true. Like, more than they do here. Hmm. Uh, well, they're trying to anyway. Yeah. But it, Japan being Japan, it's kind of a slow process. It it is, but like I say, they're they're doing much better than they are here. Like Marvel and DC, and that kind of hum and haw mm. at doing their online thing, but they, it never. They I don't think they've really gotten the hang of it yet. Right. Like the uh, the actual print copies of their books are still where they make their money. Right. Which is a. Gary thought, although oh, Marvel and DC, they both have their subscription services. Yeah. And I don't know how much money they're making from them. I mean, that's not something they're releasing, so it's hard to say. I will say the, the print books must be making most of their money. Mm-hmm. But 
Marvel and DC have that interesting thing where they're both owned by mega corporations that have an interest in keeping them going for one reason or another. Yeah. I, I've heard, for example, that Marvel is mostly kept going and DC to a degree too. <clears throat> um, because if they because they have to keep a lot of these characters in uh, print mm-hmm. or they'll lose the copyrights on them. So this is why a huge number of old characters from like 20, 30 years ago will suddenly pop back up in stories. It's not because they're trying to reach back to their past and be true <laughs> to their roots or something. like. No, it's because they need to keep that character in copyright. And so they keep bringing them back again. And that's what I've heard Marvel is doing a huge amount of. And again, they're, they partly exist as a factory to, to produce new content and also preserve the copyrights on the old. Yeah, kind of, the way, the way it, it, it kind of works, mm-hmm. at least it did, was Marvel and DC Comics were kind of like holding companies for the copyrights. Right. Um, I don't know if, if it's that they have to publish specific characters, mm-hmm. but they do have to show that they're still doing something with the characters. Uh, right. There's a weird clause that if they don't, it falls into that like fair usage thing. Like we were, right. like you were saying earlier about how if you don't challenge somebody using your stuff, it's it's mm-hmm. tantamount to saying, "Nah, I'm not doing nothing with it. You do it." Right. Yeah. But for the longest time, like um, DC has been part of a mega conglomerate for a long time. Oh yeah, they have been since like the. 90s at least if not the 80s yeah i think since the 80s and then but the thing is the parent company doesn't really care about the comics no warner brothers doesn't really care yeah it's it's just that's the placeholder that's where all their copyrights are are kept yep and then marvel used to be like that and they still kind of seem to be but they've been bought by disney Mm-hmm. And I could easily, I could even see Warner with DC just all of a sudden saying, no, nope, we're coming in. We're totally restructuring this. This is the, the dead spot on our like yearly report. So we're going to do this now. Hmm. Well, as I know, they're basically just exist under this perpetual, uh, you know, constant have to raise profits no matter what, no matter how, to some degree. Or at least that's what I believed, but I've heard some stuff recently that started to make me really question that. Yeah. Where Marvel doesn't really seem to care about profits recently anymore. Yeah, Marvel, well, it's Marvel Comics. They sort of do. They, mm, yeah. they care, but they're not really beholden to the parent company. Because like I say, I don't think Disney cares. Mm, like as long, as long as the comics aren't rocking the boat, they're not interfering with the movies or the toys or the cartoons or any of that stuff. Right, that's yeah. a whole other kettle of fish, and that's one of the reasons why, um, when you look at the comics, they don't tie in a great deal with like the movies and stuff. Right. Yes. They'll change characters to look more like whoever's playing the character in the movie, but mm. the stories don't reflect the film at all. They don't really mess with the bat. They're kind of a lot of them are all over the map. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and they, this, that's the weirdest part to me anyway. They don't seem to have any interest in actually making the comics reflect the movies. Like they don't seem to be doing what would be necessary to bring that movie-watching audience into reading the comics. They seem to like be perfectly happy keeping them separate. So, you know, so right now Captain America is a Nazi mm-hmm. or, or, or Hydra or whatever. He's basically a Nazi at this point mm-hmm. and apparently always was. And he was just – this was his secret – nazi thing or whatever Uh um we'll talk about that another show (laughs) the key point is is that so when 
parent has it. Sorry. So when the parent has a kid who loves Captain America comics and walks into a comic shop and says, "Hey, do you have any Captain America books that you know my two-year-old daughter can read, or whatever, or that my five-year-old daughter can read?" Um, the comic shop owner gets to say, "Well, no, we don't." I mean, maybe they could point them towards some old graphic novels or the old collections. But most of those are often in a style that wouldn't appeal to a young audience looking for stuff that's kind of tied into the movies. I mean, it's literally like they just don't care. Oh. They're 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 so busy trying to. Um, I don't even know what they're trying to do. I mean, <laughs> Marvel just moved out to L.A. They're not even in New York anymore. They moved out just like a year or so to L.A. Mm-hmm. They literally stopped all their books while they were doing it, and then they've restarted them again. And apparently it didn't work out so well. And I've heard there's actually a whole new crisis reboot coming next year. Again. Well, again, again, they seem to be doing it every like two years at this point. They, it's getting shorter and shorter between reboots because they just can't make it all work. Well, like it, it just isn't working for them. Yeah, because their big problem, and it kind of mm. ties in with, with what we're talking about with Japanese comics, mm. is that here the comics don't bring in a new audience. So they're basically playing to the same audience they've had since the 80s. Like literally the same people. You would think that, but given the nature of a lot of the books they're putting out right now, I've begun to seriously doubt that. Yeah, but there's a catch to that. Okay. And and this is where, like we've been saying all along, the thing that kept the Japanese comic industry going was the huge variety of audience members. Right. Because um, that always meant whatever the big thing was, there was something else that the average reader could get a hold of that would appeal to them specifically. Mm-hmm. So when the big thing was no longer the big thing, you could look at one of these other things and go, well, what's popular? Basketball. Okay, slam dunk. And now slam dunk is just the biggest, craziest. It's everywhere for some reason. And you could, mm-hmm. and we used to do that here mm-hmm. because that was the advantage of the the, the, the circulating audience is that you knew right. five years from now I could completely redo Superman and nobody would bitch and moan because first off, there was no internet to bitch or moan on. Yeah, yeah, true. And secondly, most of the old fans had moved on, so it was totally new people coming in. Or mm-hmm. if they were old fans, they had already come to accept that you know every few years there's going to be a big change in style. Yes. There was no fanfare. It just happened every, every few years. Mm-hmm. What's happening now is they're at that point, like the 80s is like 30 years ago. Mm. So some of that audience is dead now. Like their audience is contracting. That's why nowadays um, a comic that sells 100,000 copies is a hit. Mm. Whereas back in like the 80s, a comic that sold under 250,000 was a joke that got canceled. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It got canceled before the ink was dry on the paper kind of thing. Right, yeah. So what you're seeing now is they're starting to get to that point where they're a little nervous and they're looking, we need to bring in a new audience. Mm -hmm. But because they've been so insular for so long, because by the time the 90s hit, you only bought comic books at a comic book store. Yes. And fewer and fewer people would go in because that was like where dad and all his like weird old guy friends would hang around and argue about Batman. So the kids really didn't care to go in there. Mm-hmm. They're trying to come up with ways to get, and I'm doing finger quotes, the kids in, mm-hmm. but they have no clue. I agree with that one, yes. And this is why you'll get these like weird 
weird piecemeal things. Like I know nowadays people complain that like Marvel and DC are going like way too social justice warrior and nobody cares and their comics are all just agenda and grr. And I don't think that's wrong, but I think it's because you've got these like people sitting off as going, ah, what are the kids into these days? Ah, protesting and not having jobs, the lazy bastards. Do that. That's what our comics will be. Um, there's only one problem with your theory. Uh-huh. Since Marvel moved out to LA, uh-huh. they hired a whole bunch of young writers. I know, but the thing is, which young writers would they hire? They're going a bunch of English school graduates from the look of it. Yeah, well they're they're going to hire the people they think are going to connect with the kids today. Mm-hmm. And if Yeah, but they're not a bunch of well my point is they're not a bunch of old guys. No, the they're people, a bunch of twenty somethings. The people, maybe thirty something. The people making the books are. The people making the decisions are not. <laughs> That's a valid point. And 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 it's it's interesting because if you look just a few years before that, mm-hmm. if you remember DC caught flack for the opposite reason, because when they did their big 52 reboot, they went for the, the hitherto unheard of superhero fan audience of 14 to 25-year-old males. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, all their books had like subliminal penises on their covers. But, but That's a discussion for another it, show, Don. It we're is, getting way off track here. It is, but they went ultra macho and they were all like, all the dudes were like big and grr and all the females were half naked and had triple D cups and stuff. And they caught mm-hmm. flack for going the opposite way. Right. <clears throat> when what it is, is it's that, that desperation of trying to find that one specific, these are the kids today audience. Mm-hmm. And then that's kind of what tanks them because there aren't enough of them that you're going to bring them in. Whereas, like I say, the Japanese comic industry could survive because you always had different audiences that you could move to the front. Mm-hmm. When um, in the 2000s, they started doing Shonen Jump monthly here in North America. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the stories they ran, people would buy it for Naruto and, and Yu-Gi-Oh! Mm-hmm. But then they would always throw in at least two other stories that were absolutely nothing like anything else in the book. Hmm. So they would throw in a comedy and a soap opera comic. Okay. And if you remember in the early aughts, when the Japanese stuff took off here, everything took off. Right. You could buy the horror comics. You could buy new, you could buy old, you could buy boy comics and girl comics and, drama comics and action comic and it was because i think they did the el slicko thing is they brought the mm-hmm. kids in and, and like i've said all along because it wasn't a comic book it was manga mm-hmm. comic book is what dad and his sweaty friends complain about at that weird store downtown yep mm-hmm. so the kids could get into it because it was something quote unquote new it was their own thing and then they exposed them to a variety so you could hook those different audiences Right. And then that's what ended up happening. And then here in North America, you got weird cross pollinization because you look at something like uh, Bleach or Naruto. Mm-hmm. Both of those comics in North America, when they came out, had 40% female fans. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And they're action comics, and we could never pull that off. Like your, your, your Marvels, your DCs at best would have like 10% female readership, maybe yes. 15 but it was it was in part because you do this like weekly book. It it had something everybody liked. It was accessible because it was five bucks, 
mm-hmm. for like a 250 to 300 page book. And even if you count the previews and that as ads, that's still like 200 pages of comic. Yeah, Shonen Jump America was a great deal. It was. It really was. Yeah. So you, you would buy it. You could buy it for one story because you're getting like 40 pages of that one story for five bucks. Mm-hmm. Whereas an American comic was comparably priced and is only like 22 to 24 pages a story. Yeah, I know. That was crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you've bought this thing. There's all these other stories. You're just going to read it because it's, it, it's there. Right. Yeah. Nobody, uh, no, I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to purposefully flip right over that. You get exposed to new stuff. They found hitherto unheard of audiences. And that's why in the 2000s, that took off here. Yeah, yeah. It made a huge deal. And that's one of those things that Marvel and DC just have never managed to pull off. I do remember they have tried a few times in mm. their histories to pull off something that was shown in jump like. Yeah. But they never managed to do it. They could never manage to get that audience uh to cross pollinate and to uh buy a book that was a whole bunch of serial stories running at the same time. Yeah, I think I think though the two of them did have up period cuz I think in the silver age mm-hmm. uh DC did a better job at having mass appeal. Right. And I think in the bronze age um, Marvel kind of, kind of had a, a better luck at doing that, but they cheated by getting Star Wars. Right. Cause Star Wars kind of rejuvenated the North American comic industry. Right. Somebody wrote an article about that we could link to. Hmm. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and, do that. and if you remember at that point, late seventies, Marvel started doing more science fictiony stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they had the tie-ins, they did Godzilla, that was before Star Wars, but then they did Shogun Warriors, they had Micronauts, Micronauts is another big hit. Dude, we will uh, talk about that in the Marvel episode, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing a Marvel let's get episode. back on the Japanese okay. track. Yeah, we, we should do a Marvel Comics mm-hmm. episode, but we'll get, we'll get there. <laughs> um, maybe we can get Stan Lee to come on, that would be awesome. I don't think it's going to happen, but we'll, we can try. Um, so, uh, we do have mutual friends, so maybe we could pull that off, we'll mm-hmm. see. Dun dun. Um, um, but, well, mutual guess, I should say. Mm, but uh, anyway, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. But any- we're, we're coming for we're coming for you, Stan. Hang in there. <laughs> all right. So, but anyway, right, so you you we got the we got the odds. Yep. Okay. Uh, in Japan, and where I think, like I say, marketing takes over. The comics mm-hmm. are contracting. Yep. Uh, the audience is contracting a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then you get into the the teens. Right. Yep. Or is there anything from the aughts you think needs to be added? Uh, no, no, I think so because the aughts were basically dominated by what we've talked about. Yeah. The shonen fight formula, um, the uh, the shonen fight formula, the kids collecting stuff formula. Um, yeah, it's kind of mostly it actually. There's still it's still there. I mean, Death Note comes out. It's a big influence, but I and there are some Death Note copies that come out in fact you can still see psychological battle manga today actually there's still yeah. a bunch of them most of them don't get translated but i have read a few fan translations of different ones and yeah they're still ultimately variations on the hikaru no go death note approach yeah and yeah the other the other thing with the dragon ball z thing taking over is that it becomes the formula for for all comics yes young old male female that becomes what a comic book is <laughs> Exactly. 
Okay, so the creators of Death Note decide to do a comic called Bakuman, um, which is about um, two talented artists, well, an artist and a writer, uh, Moritaka Mashiro, an artist and inspiring writer, Akito Takagi, two ninth grade boys who decide to become manga artists. And um, it would run in Shonen Jump. Mm-hmm. And, and ironically enough, it's about two young manga artists who are determined to get their work into <laughs> Shonen Jump. Hmm. Um, and a lot of the characters apparently in the comic are actual real Shonen Jump staff members mm-hmm. or resemble them in one way or another. They're definitely based on a few people. And is a kind of expose slash critique of the whole manga industry combined with a kind of how to do comics or a full, I guess a philosophy of manga yeah. uh, book in a lot of ways. It's not exactly a how-to, more of a philosophy of manga yeah. approach. Um, and yeah, Bakuman, again, um, uses that shonen fight formula in a lot of ways. Like it's still using that sh- the same formula, I would argue, that um, Death Note used. Mm-hmm. Just in a slightly different way. In fact, maybe even it's closer to Dragon Ball Z, actually, in some ways. I I think it is. Um, one of the things about Bakuman mm-hmm. that I've I like we've talked about, but I've never seen mentioned anywhere else. A lot of people think it's it's a how to 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 get into doing comics in Japan, mm-hmm. but we've talked before about how I think it's a shot at the industry. Mm-hmm. That the that, that Bakuman is meant to highlight what a horrible, pandering, terrible, exploitive industry Japanese comic books really are. Right. And we've talked about because one of the things that you get, you keep getting the editors and the, the head editors mm-hmm. and the executives who are who are based on real people. Um you, you can tell who's a real person. The term that I've heard used in the past, uh, I think it was on the stupid comics website, is whenever you see a character in a comic whose face is a little more facey than uh, than other characters. They're usually modeled on a real person. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was that face was is a little more realistic, right? Yeah, yeah. That 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 was uh that was the term that I've seen you and you can see it in that in in Bakuman that every now and then some of the executives they look like portraits. Yeah. And the weird thing is they're always espousing these theories about like one of the ones that comes up early on when I talk about publishing the chief editor. Remember, he goes, manga just has to be good and then it will sell. And then you get like 80 pages showing how you can game the system to make your comic the number one comic, even if it sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there are ways to game the system because... I don't, we haven't talked about this, I don't think, even though we've talked about Shonen Jump a lot, about how Shonen Jump is literally a giant popularity contest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, every issue of Shonen Jump, and I don't know how far back this goes, but I'm guessing well into the early 80s, if not into the 70s, probably. Every issue of Shonen Jump comes with a card, that uh, postcard built into it that you can basically check off what your favorite titles were from that book and send it in. Mm-hmm. And it's their way of getting feedback from the readers. And then that feedback is compiled and they use that to help determine what the order of the books, the order of the stories in the book is going to be. Yeah. 
Um, and in fact, that's one of the weird things about Shonen Jump is the early, the more forward it is in the rankings, um, the more popular that book is, mm-hmm. and vice versa. So you can literally see in the lineup how popular different books are, and which is the most popular and which isn't the most popular. Yeah. I think there might be a little bit of variation in there, but I think they talk about that in Bakuman where that's not 100% true, but unofficially that's the case. Yeah, and, and the reason for that is because uh, the stories at the front usually get the color pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's expensive, and then that... Which is weird, because when they did them here, mm-hmm. the, the monthly Shonen Jump here, it was always the new story which was usually the more experimental one that got the front spot. Hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they were trying to get people exposed to new things, right? Yep. And everything. But uh, they wanted people to try stuff and they didn't want it to be buried in. Yeah. Uh, and ignored. Um, but generally speaking, yeah. So Shonen Jump is... Uh, as Bakuman reveals, a bit of a complicated creature yeah. in many ways. And it can be gamed. You can actually come up with different approaches to boost your popularity. And I imagine most of those techniques are still being used to this very day by many artists. Yep. Including probably the ones who created Bakuman <laughs> at that time. Because Bakuman does the weird thing too of, uh, to anybody who, who, who reads it. And I do recommend reading it. It's a really good comic. Hmm. Is that when you meet the other cartoonists, they have a tendency to draw them and design them in the style of whatever kind of comic they draw. Yes. And and that's something. There's also, um, there's a part near the end. I don't know if, if this is official or not, but we've talked about it too. That there's basically a guy who's one of the, the cartoonists that comes in, he represents the American way of doing comic books. Mm. He's basically Marvel in DC. Yes. Yeah. And I, 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 I that can't be like accidental. Mm. And, and neither can like the, uh, the results of that, I guess is how you'd put that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bak- it's hard to discuss Bakuman because our audience hasn't read it and we don't want to spoil it for yeah. them. Um, but Bakuman, actually, if you really want to understand what the relatively current, because it's now a number of years old, mm-hmm. manga industry is actually like, go read Bakuman. Yeah, go go read all of them for uh, next week. We'll be talking about it next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> there will be a test. There will be a test, exactly. Get out, <laughs> go get those issues of Bakuman. There's only 20 volumes of it. Yeah. Um, and there's another thing we, you know, we actually didn't really discuss too much, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think we actually should mention that. Um, Japanese comics, since I'm not actually sure where it started. I think it started in the 70s, but it might be the 80s. They began collecting them. Mm-hmm. Now, we referenced in the 1950s, they had what they called the, uh, was it the Red Book Collections. I remember yeah. talking about that. So they've been collecting them for a very long time. But at a certain point, these little trade paperback books started coming out of the comics and they're basically eight to ten chapters of the story per volume yeah and that's another thing that pretty much all 
Japanese comics to one degree or another are structured with the plan to release them in these volumes. So this is why every eight or nine chapters or so, there's going to be a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Or there's going to be some major thing happen because they want you to come back and read the next volume. Yeah. And that in- influences things. Like Japanese story arcs tend to take place in blocks of eight. Yeah. For, for that very reason. Some books will, some story arcs will run over many, many volumes. But even within them, you'll find that there will always be the biggest twist about chapter eight. And that's because that's meant to be the, yeah, that's the cliffhanger for them to get you to come back. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's a little new. Mm -hmm. I think that was a 70s thing. Like, they, they collect them. I've seen like, uh, Astro Boy collections from like the 60s. Right. So they, they, they weren't the, the Tankobon, the little paperback looking ones. They were big. They looked like the weekly books. But what you found, the earliest Japanese stuff, tend to be it tended to be written like how uh, a lot of European comics are done today. Mm-hmm. That they're sort of written in chapters. Right. And then once you get to the end of this chapter, that's the end. The next one might continue, it might not. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 were, they weren't originally worried about the compilations Mm. because a lot of the stories would be kind of uh, like I said, Mm semi-connected. Like you can read an Astro Boy story and then read the next one and it doesn't have anything to do with the first one you read, even if it's the one that follows. Right. Except for certain watershed ones where they'll introduce a character or something. And then, but that, that'll, it's, it's more semi-serial. Hmm. When you got exactly. when you got to like the 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 Gekiga era, you started mm-hmm. getting actual stories, and I think by the seventies there was that look of the idea that you'd be collecting them. Yes, and it was also the idea that what they have in Japan that we didn't hear mm-hmm. was because these books would be in print for a while. You didn't constantly rehash stuff. And if you did a reboot, it was usually like a total cold reboot. Yep. Oh, this story just takes place in 100 years from the last one did. Just because. Fuck you. That's why. And mm. it it wasn't like... It was kind of like what we did here with like the Marvels and the DCs up until the 80s. Right. But it, it everything... You started having that idea that it's all a continuing story. That, that there are mm. events and consequence. Because these books will just constantly be in print. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And that's the thing, right? As I can say from living over there and that, you have kids that are, you know, in their like 10, 11, 12, year old, 12 years old, reading comics from 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Because they can still find them on the shelf. Yeah. Actually, you're older than that because you've got kids that are like 10 years old reading Tezuka. <laughs> reading like early Tezuka. Yeah. And they're still available. And so they'll find them on the shelf. It's not unusual for kids in 2017 in Japan and Taiwan and Korea to be well-versed in 80s comic books, mm-hmm. in the popular 80s comics, because, yeah, they can find them at their you know comic book cafes or their uh, rental stores or whatever, or online these days. Yeah. I mean, they can find that stuff really easy, and they, they read it. Yeah. They can, they can, there's a whole history of these books, and... So a lot of them, like, they're still in print. Like, Tankobon, as long, Tankobon from the 1980s are still in print as long as they sell. They're just going to keep them around. Yep, and that that's one of the reasons why, if you look up stats, you'll see, like, a Japanese comic that sold 150 million copies. 
Yeah. Well, they didn't do that in like one week. It's because they're on the 50th printing of the uh, collection. Well, yeah, that's the thing. When you see the Japanese comics uh, numbers, you're generally looking at the Tankobon collections. You're looking at the, you know, the graphic novel collections yeah. there. And so it's multiplied by the fact that, you know, something like One Piece has like, you know, 80 volumes. And then, you know, those are all selling every week. Like people are buying maybe not all 80 at the same time, but kids are still buying them today. And they're going through and it's been running for 20 years. And so that's why One Piece, I think, is up in the, it's definitely over 100 million. I think yeah. it might be in the 200 million range. Yeah, I think it's like 150 or two. It's, it's, it's craziness. <laughs> no, I got your I got your numbers here from like okay. 2006. Okay. The total circulation for One Piece, which at this point volume 45 is the most recent, right, is 130 million copies. Volume 45 itself sold like 2,250,000 copies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yep. And and if anybody out there wants to be horrified, if you're an American comic fan, mm -hmm. the little Tankobon collections are about 200 pages. That's about a year's worth of a Marvel comic. Yeah, it is. Each one of those. So that's one piece at this point was up to like the equivalent of 45 years of a Marvel comic. Yep. And they're, by the way, they're releasing a new one every two months. Mm -hmm. Give or take. Yeah. Uh, that's about two months worth of actual printed stories. And that's, yeah, it's impressive. Mm -hmm. It really is. That's, there's, that's an understatement about just how many copies these comics sell. But we're, it's easy to forget that there are 120 million people in Japan. Yeah. And um, a lot of them read comics. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They grew up reading comics. And so, all right, so let's get into the teens. Okay. All right, so... What's happened in the teens? Well, um, a few years ago, Bleach ended. Yeah. Then Naruto ended about two years or so ago. And uh, One Piece is still going strong, of course, as it will probably be until like the mid to late 2020s, as long as the author doesn't die. God forbid. <laughs> um, he died 12 years ago. They replaced him with an android. Well, yeah, probably so, Probably his first assistant would probably continue with an, with an outline <laughs> or something. It would probably still be pretty good. Um, but the key point is, is so... The industry right now is in a little bit of a state of chaos. Mm -hmm. um, as far as I can tell, um, no real other books have risen up to replace you know, the big three. And maybe that's not a bad thing, actually. I mean, as we said, One Piece is still running. There is a Naruto sequel called Boruto running, but I don't think it's anywhere near as popular. Mm -hmm. um, it's running only month in one of the monthly Shonen magazines. There's a... Um, what is it? There's another series that popped up in Naruto's spot called uh, My Hero Academia. Okay, yeah. That's been running for a while, which is a teen superhero one. It's popular, but not mega popular, from what I've been able to tell. It, it looks like it's kind of their number two story, I think, at this point in Shonen Jump. People can write in and correct me if you're actually reading it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, that My Hero Academia is kind of the number two at this point. And then there's a bunch of other ones that are running, but, you know, in a way this might be good. And the reason I say that is this. Those three, by being such mega hits, were kind of stealing all the oxygen from the room, so to speak. Right. 
now with just one piece in in the game there's room for other ones to rise up again like there are now two other spots that other titles can rise up into like my hero academia for example or something that can replace it if you know my hero academia starts waning so to speak yeah but there's more experimentation i suspect going on right now like for example one of the main titles in shonen jump right now is this thing called robot x laser beam oh okay yeah which is a golfing manga yeah (laughs) but i'm willing to bet i haven't read it but i have a funny feeling that if i do actually check i will probably discover that it's basically still following the uh, dragon ball shonen fight formula it's just a golfing manga version of it that's my guess i might be wrong not sure but i suspect that and i mean yeah, I mean, there's they seem to be trying sports. They seem to be trying a whole bunch of different stuff now. So it's no longer just you know copies of the big three. There seems to be a lot more variety because they're they're looking for the next big thing at the moment. Yeah, there's there's kind of two things that shape Japanese comics now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big one is oh my god, who knows over? I'm gonna lose their jobs. What do you do now? And I I think what what you you're seeing the audience is contracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, sales are down. Two of the big three are are are, are basically done. Uh, what what you're getting is diffusion. Mm. That there is a lot more experimentation because there are a lot more holes in the in in the audience now. Mm-hmm. That there's a lot of people who weren't getting anything they were interested in. Right. And now that you know the 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 three big Dragon Ball Z clones. Are, are kind of dying off. It does, like you were saying, it, it leaves that spot open that other things can kind of creep in. Right. Because I, we were talking about this before we started recording. A lot mm-hmm. of the Japanese comics that I like personally have come out in like the last 10 years. Hmm. And I, th- okay. I think it's because for a long time, like when you got to the 90s and comics started getting kidified again, Mm-hmm. And I think partly because, like we said, you know, Pokemon, we can sell kids stuff. Oh, man, that's great. And then everything kind of got aimed at that audience. Everything got aimed at the marketing. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see stories being produced to produce a story now. Right. And you're starting to see, yeah, ex- experimentation reaching out to different audiences. Mm-hmm. You're seeing um, there's nostalgia starting to kick in. Yeah. And they're being nostalgic for the 80s, which is actually a big a big boom. Yep. You can see that especially with the animation. The animation's getting more experimental. Mm. That makes sense. Well, they're they're also um we haven't talked about this cuz it's not relevant exactly to this discussion, mm-hmm. but Japan has been go- undergoing for I guess almost the last 10 years a huge animation boom. Yeah. Where they have a whole bunch of new channels pop up and there's been a huge demand for content. Mm-hmm. And so what they've been doing is they've been animating everything they can get their mitts on pretty much. So a lot of old stuff has suddenly gotten new animated releases or a new animated reboot or all sorts of stuff's been going on mm-hmm. just because they need this animated content for their audiences. And, and oh, go ahead. And as an end result, um, they... I forgot what I was going to say. Go on. Oh, well, I was going to say, you're right, and they're all starting to reach further afield. Yes. Uh, the best example I can think of is One Punch Man. 
that was basically a web comic. Yeah, it was. A- yep. And then still is. Yeah, and then but it got picked up by one of the bigger companies. Mm-hmm. They slapped on one of their their more popular, more talented artists to give it more the the more graphic appeal, I guess you'd say. Yep. Over the original, and then that becomes like a big animated thing, and then that's starting to pick up. Yes, but, definitely. But that's the kind of thing, like say, ten years prior, they wouldn't have done because they would just look in house and say more Dragon Ball, just do more. Which One Punch Man is almost a parody of that because it's the guy who powered up to the point he literally cannot power up anymore. Right. Yeah, that's true. And again, yeah, you're right. That's more experimental. It's trying something different, mm-hmm. trying something new. And the Japanese are doing that at the moment. I think also the internet has made a big difference as well. Yep. Just as uh caused a huge variety of new stuff to start popping out. Um, and of course there were lots of mini comicettes all throughout Japan once the whole fanzine market started to take off. Mm-hmm. The internet and webcomics in Japan has of course also made a huge change to the market. Yeah. There's much more variety. Um, it's created competition, of course, for the uh, actual mainstream industry. So it's hurt their sales, among other things. Right. And it has, apparently. Um, but at the same time, you're right, we're seeing a lot more different stuff come out. Yeah. And they have been trying to create um, online comic uh, websites where you can go for new comics each week and everything as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think they've been entirely successful, but I might be wrong about that. I don't know what the current state of like Shonen Jump Online is or anything like that or what they've exactly been doing. I th- I, th- I think it gets like about 250,000 like hits per, per book a week. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, I think... I, I mean... Th- it's not great, but it's not bad. Yeah, it's not comparable to the print stuff, but I do think it, it it's not doing bad at all. Yeah. And it will hopefully just continue to go up yeah. as uh, time goes on. I'm, I mean, I'm honestly hoping for that. Yeah. Um, and hell, we've mm-hmm. we've had not one but two new Gona guys in the last decade. Yeah, he, everyone's having their resurgence, even Gona guy. No, no, I mean like two new equivalents to Gona guy. Oh, okay. Well, he's been doing new stuff too, but okay, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, I'm thinking of uh, Kigichu Kashihisha. Okay, who does what? Frank and Fran. Oh, yes, yes, he was awesome. <laughs> and everybody's hero, Boichi. Boichi is also awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Boichi, interestingly enough, I just noticed this. Boichi has stuff running in um, Shonen Jump. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of surprising. Yeah, but- yeah, it's yeah. He he's got a. I think it's Doctor Stone. Yeah, that's the one where uh, everybody gets hurt in the statues. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but that's kind of interesting. I should check that out. Actually, it doesn't have the uh, same level of TNA that every single other thing he ever did does. R- well, no, I imagine it doesn't. <laughs> he is he is a master. Of, just when you think he can't cram another ass shot, and it's like, nope, there he did. The man is a genius. So right. Okay. <laughs> Well, he's Boichi, yeah, but Boichi <laughs> is a pretty impressive dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I will say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, new stuff. They are still trying new stuff. The manga industry is still far from dead. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's as healthy as perhaps we'd want or as, or perhaps as they'd want. Um, but I'd still say compared to the North American comic industry, it's going strong. Yeah, I think uh, artistically it's very healthy. It's just sales-wise it's not it's not as healthy as uh, the execs would like. Right. Yeah, I could, I would definitely agree with that. 
Um, and so hopefully um, it will have a long life ahead of it. It almost didn't because that was one of the other things in the uh, teams that sort of had people a little concerned. Oh? Bill 156. What's Bill 156? Remember that was their version of uh, Seduction of the Innocent. Oh, right. Um, yeah, are you talking about the one where the super censorship bill that they released for, for to- it's only for Tokyo. For Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the old trick, right? Where Tokyo is the largest manga market. So if you release a censorship bill for Tokyo, they basically, it's going to affect the whole, all of Japan. Yeah. And this is something that has happened on a regular basis. I mean, you know, slowly, the amount of, uh, well, let's be honest, sex and fan service and that in show, especially in shonen manga, has actually decreased over the last, like, say, 20 years a lot yeah. compared to where it was. Um, and now, mind you, some of it did transfer off into other comics. I mean, there's other stuff that still does have a fair amount of fan service. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the shonen element, yeah, they stopped using TNA. And a lot of that is the result of, like, concerned parents groups and other groups that they're just trying to keep from annoying so to speak and have them have them protesting and things like yeah tokyo's governor there governor slash mayor who crusaded to basically remove pretty much fan service from japanese comic books yeah basically and has at least partly succeeded see i don't know if i'd i don't think it did okay i think again what happened when it came out is it was the safe money because now you look like a hero mm-hmm. but by the early like uh teens most of the mainstream stuff had been kidified again. Right. Because it was all about selling stuff to kids that they could then fight with. And I don't think it exactly took off because if you look at the books that started getting popular after that, mm-hmm. like it was after that that you had like Frank and Fran come out. Yeah. You, ha- right. you had everything Boichi ever did. Yeah, you had stuff that was starting to get a little attention, like Hell's Angels or Lives, which I know you guys hated, but I liked. Right. Even something like One Punch Man. One Punch Man has like you know every now and then they'll throw in just like a crazy amount of TNA. Mm, that's true. And it it seems like again it it was that thing where the industry in Japan doesn't kowtow to the concerned citizens. That the bill comes out, everybody looks like a hero, the industry had already been kidified when they decided, nope, time to show cleavage again, all of that gets ignored. <laughs> right, yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think, though, that they were, there was a point where they were probably headed towards, like, you know, let's just say a ton more TNA, uh, and maybe even getting worse, and then because of the concerned citizens, they started backing off. I mean, I have heard stories of, for example, stuff being published in, say, you know, Shonen Jump, for example. And then when the Tacobon version comes out, it's been photoshopped and toned down. You know, that the panties are suddenly a lot bigger, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the reverse of the stuff that happens with DVDs here. Yeah. You know, where, <laughs> they, where they'd release the stuff that wasn't toned down on the DVDs. There, the Tacobon usually end up actually being the toned down versions because they, again, it's for a mass market. And usually they got flack the first time it came out. So like, okay, fine. So her <laughs> panties are now much bigger. Or she's actually wearing, you know, shorts or something now. That kind of thing. Because it's almost always just TNA. Yeah, I can, I can kind of, but like I say, I don't know if that's exactly because of 
the 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 complaining or if they're using the complaining as the meter stick because they are trying to sneak in a younger audience mm. in a lot in a lot of ways it's like the senate subcommittee hearings right because people don't realize that uh, the comics code mm-hmm. that we had because of that didn't come from the u.s government right that the uh yeah it came from within the industry yeah the the 54 subcommittee hearings said no this is complete crap comics are just like anything else they don't make you want a juvenile delinquent get out of our office but the industry right. made the code now people think the code was made specifically to uh take ec comics out because they were by far the most popular books mm-hmm. and the code had specific things like you can't have the word like horror or terror, or crime in the title. And that was like Vault of Horror, Crypt of Terror, Crime Stories, were like EC's top-selling books. Mm. So people think it targeted that. And it's the same thing, this Bill 156, I remember when it came out, people thought it was specifically tackling uh, uh, High School mm-hmm. of the Dead. Right. That a lot of people, okay. that they felt that that specifically was the book that this thing was, was going after. Right, right. Maybe. I could see that. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. we're running low on time, so right. let's uh, let's let's wrap this puppy on up. Mm-hmm. So, um, any final thoughts then, Don, about uh, manga? I guess we've kind of covered what's happening <laughs> so far. I mean, if anything, based on the cycles that we've seen so far, okay, mm-hmm. I should probably start with my own. Mm-hmm. If anything, based on the cycles we've seen so far, I would say that probably. It's just a matter of time before another, you know, Naruto or Bleach or whatever does actually appear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these periods of, ex- it always follows the same cycle, right? Yeah. There's a period of experimentation and eventually a few dominant types pop up and they basically take over and everyone just follows those for another decade or so until they don't work anymore. And then after that, there's another period of experimentation and on the cycle goes. Yeah. Yeah. And... For better or for worse, I think the industry will slowly continue to slip online more and more. Yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that it won't be healthy. It just means that it will be more online because, you know, every Japanese is now walking around with cell phones and such. So it'll be a Shonen Jump cell phone app and you'll just basically read your Jump comics on that. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think that's probably what's going to happen with, again, hopefully more and more um, experimentation. Yeah. For now, anyway. Yeah. Let's see what happens. But... Uh, and we'll definitely do a our favorite manga episode as well. We're not we talked about some of them obviously here, but I think there's a bunch of ones that definitely deserve more attention. But we definitely don't have time to talk about them today. True. So, and we'll talk about the anime industry in hopefully a slightly shorter episode <laughs> sometime in the future. That, that'll be next week where we cover the entire Japanese animation industry. Uh, dude, just shoot me now. Get the coffee. Uh, okay. Anyways, folks. For those of you who have managed to get through all of this, thank you for listening. Um, and we really appreciate it. And hopefully you've learned a few things or um, have learned to hate us, whichever. <laughs> um, and uh, please tune in next time when we'll talk about something much more interesting and maybe even have an actual guest on. We'll see. I don't know if you could find anything more interesting because I think what I'm hoping mm-hmm. the big takeaway for anybody who listens to this that hates Japanese comics is it's not one thing. Mm-hmm. That, like, I, I always compare it to television. Like, if you were to watch the Horrible Housewives of Potemkin or whatever and think, all television sucks, mm-hmm. you're generalizing too much. 
Right. That you can't okay. you, you can't really talk about Japanese comics because it's not one thing. It's everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see that. Okay, thanks for listening, <laughs> folks, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Luck. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!